Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Good morning. Welcome to WGN Radio, 720 AM. I'm Jim Toronto, Elton Jim, filling in for Dean Richards this morning. But listen anyway. <laughs> so, uh, keep that music going, my friend. Keep it going, keep it going. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. So, we are here today with not the A team of Dave Schwan. And Andy Mazur and Dean Richards, but we have a team, if you will, a team comprised of Don Kleppen on news, Joe Brand on sports, and Jack Heinrich, the producer here. Good morning. Hello, Joe. Hello, Dave. Uh, Don. Good morning. Oh, Don. That's my Jack Benny impersonation. Oh, Don. I don't think we ever worked together, have we, Don? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Not uh, if we have. It was brief uh, years ago. Very brief. And uh, Joe, I always wor- love working with Joe. So I feel like the last time we worked together was during COVID. Probably. It it's was- been a while. It's been a while. But good to see you here. So, and we got Jack producing. He's got his Bass Pro Shop uh, hat on, so he's all set to go. I'm so- ready. We don't have the A team, but we have A team. And A team. A and A team. I was you. a B student, so I'm okay with being part of the B team. Well, I see the WGN radio touts the fact that they've got this B team on TV. They right. do, yeah. That's right. And uh, I ain't going for that. No can do. Could we be the A B team? I was thinking of that. Like yeah. A B, like you know in like horse racing they have the A and B horses. Right. Or like blood type, A B positive. <laughs> oh yeah. Well I didn't want to say A plus because I don't want to be, you know, too right. uh, don't presumptuous. Set standard too high. And then you know, I always didn't like getting an A minus in in, in school. Because it's like either give me the A or give me the B. What's this A minus? It was either an A or it wasn't. So I, I, I'm staying with, we are an A team. I went to Catholic school and you either got the A or nothing else. Right. There was no A plus, <laughs> yeah. there's no A minus. There was A, a or hell. A or, yes. Uh, yeah. right. or you got an A minus, we would pray for you. Yeah. Right. Oh, believe me, I went to 12 years of Catholic high school, grammar school and high school, so uh, believe hey, me. Hey, me too. Yeah, where did you go? Uh, I went to St. Gerald's, and then I went to Marist High School. You went to Marist. Marist. I went to Marist. I went to St. Pat's. Okay, Saint Pat's. all right. Well, we were we were in. I don't know. By the time you went, you're, I don't know. If we you were, were out yeah. Of it. When I was there, we were both part of the ESCC. Yeah, I the think East it's, Suburban Catholic Conference. I think it's all moved around now. But yeah, okay. Now we got to fight after the show. Yeah, I, I right. Can't believe that. Where does well, Notre Dame fit into all this? I was at Notre Dame for two years. Oh, at Niles. Niles? Yes, that's oh, right. They, they were in the. Uh, they were East yeah. Suburban Catholic. We are. Wow, look at us. Oh man, this is a. Perfect Sunday morning. Oh my gosh! Right we, you know what? Heck with that. We are the A team. That's right. Or we're the ESCC team. Right. Wow! My goodness! How all, cool! All these letters. I mean, we should <laughs> we should do something with them later oh, yeah. on in the show. We uh, I, I played I played sports in high school, and we went to Notre Dame and Marist all the time. In fact, I didn't even know where the heck Marist. I mean, Northwest Side over here in Belmont and Austin at St. Pat's. Marist. When we had to go to Marist for a for a for a game, we brought provisions. <laughs> 
We brought food. It's like okay, we're going. This is like we're going uh, like grapes of wrath. Oh, we're going. Where the heck is the South Side? That's so and then cute. where is Maris? That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, you guys needed the escort, the police escort I, coming on in. I still don't know any. The uh, thank God the South Side just has streets with numbers. Oh yeah, we make it very easy on ourselves. Yeah, because uh, you know I, I always joke that you know you couldn't remember the names. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, yeah, <laughs> elementary humor for you Northsiders out there. Oh, ouch! Oh, we've got a little controversy and a little, uh, a little, uh, little South Side North Side tension going on here. And and Don, you went. So where did you live? If you went to Notre Dame for two years, Morton Grove. So oh, Morton was, Grove. So yeah. you're right in the middle. That's right. Yeah, freshman sophomore was at Notre Dame, and then junior senior Niles West. Okay. So, so you're you're kind of like uh, Sweden. <laughs> yeah, neutral. That's <laughs> right. Just Super neutral. I had a little bit of Catholic. I did go to Catholic grade school for uh, for a bit, and then um, you know St. Peter's and St. Martha's and all that. So I'm actually very de- uh, depressed because I just found out that my grammar school in Chicago, St. Bartholomew, that is on the northwest side on uh, Addison near Cicero, is closing after almost a hundred years. Oh, wow! Wow! And uh, that's uh, that was a very. Um, just kind of a shocking thing. The great thing about that school, we did have some great sports there, too. I have great memories from that school. But we had one of the best grammar school gyms hmm. in the city to the fact where the CYO, do they still even have CYO anymore, the Catholic Youth Organization? But they used to play sure. basketball, and they would come. To, all the games would be at our gym because it was such a great gym. So what a shame that... Uh, that school had some really nice amenities. Wow! And, and now it's closing, like so many. We didn't um, even we didn't even have a gym. We had a church, a gym, a cafetorium yeah, in the basement. A lot of schools. Yeah, we used to go. Now, where was St. Gerald's at? Where was that at? Well, uh, it's on Southwest Highway in Central. They do have a gym now and, and a beautiful church too. But yeah, we uh, for for a while there when they were updating the church, we had church, gym class, and lunch all in the same area <laughs> down in the basement. Oh, I remember we used to play. Uh, I played basketball in um, in grammar school and. We we would go to all the uh, the schools around, and a couple of schools like, uh, which now sadly closed, Our Lady of Victory on the northwest side, on Sunnyside, their gym was kind of a, a converted, either church or side room that if you had a if you had a shot with a high arc, it hit the ceiling, <laughs> and you, and then the, then you know the other team got the ball. I mean, and then there was and then St. Angela's uh, was uh, sort of on the west side. Near North Avenue, I believe, and uh, that was a church. We literally were playing, like you said, in a church. Wow! Yeah, oh, it's unbelievable. But this was a beautiful gym. Went down, down into the you. You walk down, and the water uh, bottles are filled with holy water. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, great stands and it just it, you know, it was just a sound system. I remember in eighth grade. Uh, I I don't want to take credit for this, but I will anyway. Um, but uh, the song "We Will Rock You," we are the champions. Had just come out, and the, we had this sound system. And I said, and I was in eighth grade, and I said, um, "Hey, can we play this song when we come out for warm ups?" I said, "This is a great song to play." And now, forty, fifty years later, it's a staple. <laughs> I'm just saying. You were the original jock fan? I did it. I did it. (laughs) That's amazing. I I said, here's, I had my, I still have that 45, by the way. I mean, Queen should be thanking you. I know. You know know the royalties I created for them? (laughs) Them and and Gary Glitter? My goodness. Are you waiting on a response from Freddie Mercury's? (laughs) (laughs) Brian May is on the line. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, fear not, though, uh, regular Dean listeners, we will have many of the... um, 
The usual segments, including uh, Dr. Kevin Mose, will be on with us uh, in a little while at 9.30. And uh, we'll have a theater segment. We'll do some food segments. So there's going to be a little Dean and a little Elton Jim thrown in there for good measure. That's always a good mixture. And, uh, and, and fear not, Dave Schwan, though not in the studio, who else could do a far-flung forecast except Dave? So Dave is actually, I don't know where he's at. Um, I assume he's probably camping out at Soldier Field. I'm sure he's been to the first two Taylor Swift shows. And so I'm sure he's just uh, he wants to get a good spot uh, to get some good merch because like, apparently the merch sells out uh, very quickly at a Taylor Swift concert. So people are there early not just to get a good seat, but to buy T-shirts and, and friendship uh, you know, bands and things like that. So, anklets. Anklets, yeah. So uh, last night I was actually in this area around 11 o'clock, 11.30, and I saw a lot of young women obviously walking from uh, Soldier Field, and I was like, wow. Uh, talk about uh, I want to I'm going to later in the show we're going to talk to two young women who went on Friday who are longtime Taylor Swift fans because today we're all Swifties aren't oh, yeah. we we're all Swifties in fact throughout the show I will be also pointing out some famous Swifts if you will not just Taylor there are some other famous Swifts that I will be also educating you about throughout the day but we are in definite Taylor Swift, Swifty mode, and so we will be talking about that as well. Um, so a lots, lots to plan here, as usual. Always trying to uh, pack in 10 pounds of radio baloney into a four-hour bag. So we're going to have fun doing that. Stay with me until 1 o'clock. Um, I'm going to be here. I hope you will, too. I'm Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards, but listen anyway, and no switching. Oh, I thought you were at Soldier Field camping out for the Taylor Swift shows. No, 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 they, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get reports on that later. Uh, I, I have been wondering about how all that's going over there. You're not uh, a Swifty? No, I know, I know uh, Jeff on our, on our staff there who works with us on weekends is a Swifty, but, uh, yeah, she's I, going, she's going today. She's all, she's, uh, she's already has a, a sequined little, uh, jacket on, but she said that's not even her Swifty outfit. She's going to be getting dressed up and ready to go for the show tonight. Oh, so, okay. I thought it might have been last night or Friday night, so it's tonight yet. Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah, three. That's a hat trick. Yeah, yeah. When, when, three days. It is a hat trick. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, yeah. Have to, you have to give, whether you're a Taylor Swift fan or not, you have to give this woman credit. Uh, you know, three nights at Soldier Field, that's, that's what, almost 200,000 people? Not only that, but think of the uh, the work involved in putting a show like that on three nights a week. That's exhausting. Yeah. Even yeah. for something as young as Taylor Swift. <laughs> so you are in Virginia. Isn't Virginia for lovers? Uh, yes, it is. And actually, uh, I'm here with my girlfriend. Oh, how fitting. Virginia. Well, well, we've, had a, we've had a wonderful time here thus far. Well, uh, you may be interested well. in knowing that she has just been cast in Evita. She's going to be in a production of Evita here. Don't cry uh, for her, Dave Schwan. What's that? Don't cry for her, David Schwanny. <laughs> right. And uh, she just finished uh, a run in uh, Steel Magnolias. She was Weezer, uh, Shirley MacLaine's role in the movie. Of, nice, uh, Steel Magnolias. nice. Nice. So she's uh, very excited about all of that. And by the way, we saw last night an absolutely wonderful production of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Uh, some friends of hers were in the show, and we saw some other friends there. An amazing production here for a community theater group, Hope Theater, 
uh, was it was really, really very, very well done. It was nice. very impressive. So, Shawana Rue, yeah, where are we? Where are we flinging today? Well, every time I'm here, I like to concentrate on a nearby location, just a, a little refresher for everybody. Occoquan goes back to the 1730s, and it's only about a half hour drive from uh, Washington D.C. So. When I'm here, I like to talk about places that are in Virginia or close by and have some historical content to them. And I picked the place today at Manassas, Virginia. Ah, Manassas. Manassas uh, is a... not far from here at all. Population 42,000. It was settled in 1850, known as Manassas Junction. But if if you're a Civil War person, you will know that there were not one, but two battles fought here during the Civil War. The Battles of Bull Run. The first one here in July of 1861, the second in August of 1862. That first battle was the first land battle of the Civil War. And um, sadly, you know, these horrible uh, battles uh, resulted in many, many casualties. Nearly 1,000 died in the first battle, and then in July, or rather August of 1862, another battle was fought here. Over 3,000 lost their lives. And that was only the beginning of the war. And there's a marvelous uh, uh, site here run by the National Park Service uh, for the battlefield of Manassas that is well worth visiting here. So we spent the day uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, part of yesterday out there, and it it was really something to see. And Manassas, also a rock group uh, in the early 70s, uh, comprised oh, of Chris right. Hillman and uh, and Stephen Stills. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, right. Manassas. <laughs> have you ever been to uh, Have you ever been to Gettysburg? Yes, I have. Twice. Yeah, so have yeah. I. And you're talking about visiting battlefields. Uh, wow! Even though you, when you go there, as you know, Shwani, uh, it's just literally a big open field now. With a few cannons there for, uh, you know, for the atmosphere. But when you can, when you start to try to imagine what this was like, this big open field with just two armies of men running at each other and shooting at each other. Wow, it's uh, it, it it does sort of uh, it makes you take a breath. It, not only that, you're absolutely right. But in addition to that, as you've been to Gettysburg. The same thing struck me here and also at Antietam, which is only 60 miles away here, another Civil War battle, the bloodiest day of the war, by the way. This is beautiful country here. And, you know, to think about the fact that such terrible carnage took place in this beautiful countryside makes it even more uh, stark, you know? Oh, right. I mean, that's the thing. If you if you were just walking the, the, the grounds of Gettysburg, you would say, my God, this is a beautiful landscape. It's gorgeous. Yes. And yet then, as I said before, you, you take a step back and you realize the bloodshed and and the carnage. And, and if you've seen some of those pictures from the Civil War, uh, that was a very bloody war. And I can only imagine what that landscape looked like with the bottom oh my gosh so now thankfully when you look at it it is pristine and pretty but it certainly has uh has quite a history uh of what's happened on it so um yeah if you ever have a chance to go to to gettysburg or any like uh like swanee is saying any kind of civil war battleground uh you certainly will be touched by it 
Yeah, and you can't realize the full effect of it unless you do visit these places. And, uh, you know, me being a a Civil War, um, you know, an amateur historian or, you know, somebody that's really into American history, um, you know, you really can't gauge the full impact of it unless you're here. And I I have to say, Gilda has been very nice to me about, you know, letting me explore all of this. She's just been terrific. Are you one of the blues or one of the grays? Well, having been a Midwesterner born in Northwest Indiana, I'm a union. <laughs> there, <laughs> union. <laughs> there you go. Well, Dave Schwan, well, thank Manassas, you so much. Yes, Manassas has partly cloudy yeah. skies and 60 degrees right now. Ah, very good. I, I do want to make a little quick uh, correction, and I'm glad that uh, te- someone texted me at 630. Uh, I mentioned how... Somebody was neutral, and I said it was Swiss, uh, Sweden. But no, no, the neutral country is Sweden. always Switzerland. 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 That's so. correct. Yes. I knew it started with an S. I knew it was somewhere in Scandinavia. I was trying to grab it, and I grabbed the wrong one. So no yeah, herring for me. Has been neutral, and uh, they stayed neutral all through World War II. Don't know how they did that, but, but they did. did. <laughs> well, uh, Dave, Dave Chuan, thank you so much for taking time. For uh, from your your trip in Virginia, we'll, I'm sure we'll hear you back next week. Uh, I say will f- be back next week. Say hi to Don and Joe there for me. Uh, Joe's in for Andy today, so yes. uh, have a great morning. Yes, all the inmates are running the asylum today. <laughs> yes, the cats are away. The mice will play. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Schwanaru. Okay. And I'm Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards this morning. But listen anyway, after the news, we will be talking to Dr. Kevin Most. Here's the news. Uh, most dedicated Swifties, I would imagine. Uh, Dr. Kevin Most. Good morning, Dr. Most. You're a Swifty, a Swifty aren't you? Hey, Jim, I, I just love your new tagline. Listen anyway. Listen anyway. That's that's what that's what you know. Uh, several years ago, uh, someone said that you know Dean's not here, but I'll listen anyway. And I was like, oh my gosh, do I love that? So that's my tagline, um, and uh, and I do. I, I mean, look, I know Dean has a fiercely loyal following and listenership, and uh, I am grateful that he entrusts me with this uh, these sacred four hours when he's gone. Uh, so I never take that for granted. But uh, at the same time, I'm sure that when people turned on their radio and they expected to hear Dean, there was a little disappointment. So my view is, listen anyway. Well, you know what? He is a hardworking individual. He deserves a break. So I'm glad he's getting a little downtime. Yeah, well, hopefully. I, I think he, I thought uh, that Chwani was camped out, but I think Dean for sure is is camped out somewhere near Soldier Field. I'm sure he's been at all two at the first okay. two yeah. Taylor Swift shows, and he'll be there in line uh, early today to get some merch. So I'm sure that uh, tomorrow on the uh, the uh, WGN uh, Morning TV News, he will certainly have uh, some kind of a Taylor Swift T-shirt on. No question about that. Maybe a hoodie. Well, hopefully, I, I see he, he gets he buys us all eighty five dollars sweatshirts. Yeah, I, yeah. I see. I see Dean with a nice uh, Taylor Swift hoodie. I, I, I can I can see that. <laughs> anyway, thank you for taking time out on your Sunday to join me. Anyway. <laughs> even though Dean's not here. Um and what I wanted to talk about uh, today, I know, you know we're 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 right in the the couple first days here of uh, of June. And uh for many people they might not be aware of this, but June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. 
And so I thought we uh, we could talk to you, Dr. Kevin Mose, who's the chief medical officer at the Northwestern Central DuPage Hospital, um, where we are on this uh, very still, mysterious and sadly horrific disease that uh, that is affecting so many people. Uh, I myself have personal uh, experience with it. Both my parents um, had dementia and Alzheimer's before they passed away. Uh, I certainly know how difficult it is to deal with that on emotional level, on financial levels, um, uh, the, the, the toll it takes on you, uh, uh, being a caregiver or, or just being uh, a, uh, you know, a loved one to see these people with vibrant, uh, and, uh, and, and just exciting personalities, um, suddenly drift away. And so I just thought that, uh, we should be talking a little bit about this since it is, uh, Alzheimer's awareness. So doctor, where are we right now in terms of treatments and possible long-term hopeful cures? Yeah, Jim, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. The aware, to open up the awareness on this illness uh, does a couple things. One, it makes you think a little bit more about it. And two, it just shows the importance of research and what's going on. You know, this is a disease that we've known about for, what, 117 years. And I think probably the most exciting thing is what's happened, I'll say, in the last three to five years. So you think about that, 117 years, but now we're on this accelerated path for not only potentially diagnosing it early, but also for treatments that it's going to slow the progression. Because like you said, this is taking those final years of a very special person in your life and taking those final years away from them. So really important that we understand, hey, we are making improvements and we're really making some accelerated improvements recently. That's probably the most exciting thing to say, hey, to people, you know, if you're going to go for the Alzheimer's walk and, and, and um, you know, raise some money, it's great. That money is not being wasted. And the things that have been happening here just in the past, you know, a couple of weeks is actually fascinating. Well, uh, well, what are some, I know that uh, when my parents uh, were diagnosed uh, now 20 years ago, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, and they wound up uh, passing away within a couple, uh, maybe a year and a half, my, uh, but maybe three years later, they both passed away within that time. Um, at that time, the big drug was Aricept. Remember Aricept? And there was, you yep. know, there, everybody was debating how effective it was or not. I don't even hear that name anymore. So it sounds like we certainly have progressed uh, past that. Um, but um, where are we in terms? I guess, and, and I actually worked for the Alzheimer's Association uh, for a while in their public relations department um, back in the early two thousands. Why is this disease so difficult to diagnose? Is it still true that we really do not know if someone really had Alzheimer's until they pass away and an autopsy is done on their brain? Well, no, we, we have a much better idea now just with some of the scans we can do and some of the actually just some of the, the um, testing that we can do. We can really get a diagnosis earlier. But the thing is that by the time patients have symptoms, the disease has already done a lot of damage in the brain. So the key is to find it earlier. And then also, we're still not even sure of what it is, right? We know that these amyloid plaques build up and it kills cancer cells. And we're still trying to figure that portion of it out. But I think what's fascinating right now, you know, 
you can't turn on the TV right now without hearing about AI, right? AI for everything and how are we going to control AI? Right. Well, I can tell you there's a lot of AI studies going on right now that are showing that they should be able to identify somebody ten, five to ten years prior to the first symptoms of Alzheimer's. Now, wow. that may not seem too fascinating to people, but the unbelievably fascinating thing is couple that with the medications that we have now that are still in clinical trials, but how promising they are showing when we find individuals early in their disease. So when you couple the opportunity to identify the disease earlier, along with medications that can slow the progression and hopefully stop the progression at some time, boy, 117 years, look what we've done just here recently. And you know, I, I always like to look at the positives of things, this next generation, we are going to see Alzheimer's to a point where we're going to be able to identify it, control it, and these people are going to get back those final years of their lives to enjoy their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now, and, then, and part of to what you're saying then is really what needs to be done in terms of this idea of awareness is to, re- to remove the mystery and to remove then the stigma of this, because think about that in real terms. That sounds like an amazing advance that to be able to uh, to diagnose this, say, 10 years in advance, that then you will be able to begin to treat it so you can begin to head it off at the pass, perhaps. But at the same time, in reality, would you say that let's just, just talk about human nature? Would some people may be resistant to want to know? that they're going to get it because of the fear and the unknown. And so we almost need to do, from it sounds like, some kind of an educational program so that people will take this test that you're saying may be available and they will be able to handle the fact that they may be susceptible to or may be on the road to getting it, but at the same time be calmed and relieved that there's a treatment for it. Exactly. You put the two links together and you did it quite well. If all we had was a test or all we had was AI that said, boy, you have a high chance of getting Alzheimer's, many people would say, I don't want the test. I don't want to know. I'm going to go and live my life. There's nothing I can do about it. But now what if I said to you, hey, we have a good test or we're going to put all your data in and we know when we pool this much data, we can predict who has a higher chance of Alzheimer's. But now we know that we have a medication that's going to slow that progression. You will see people get in line to have that AI algorithm run on their health information. Now, when you look at some of these medications, you know, there's three or four of them out right now. The Denemimab, which is the one that just came out from Lilly, has fascinating results that, you know, it slows the progression of disease by 35%, improves your daily functions, and slows the cognitive decline. You have to remember, everybody, this is the first line of these drugs. As we progress, Scientists and researchers are going to make even better drugs. They're going to have better responses to this. So individuals right now saying, I don't want to know, boy, we're right on the cusp of I do want to know, and I want to know how I can get on a medication or get on a trial to, to slow the illness. Wow. Well, that is very that is exciting news. I, I had no uh, idea that we were so far along there. All, all you hear about a lot of times are these uh, these new drugs, as you're saying, that uh, that are being developed. And but you're always hearing it's uh, they're always kind of tempered with. However, however, however. But it really sounds like uh, you're removing that, however, and really providing yep. a lot of hope. And that's really exciting. 
Absolutely. And probably the other thing that was probably a bit, well, I don't want to say the biggest news. I think the science is the biggest news, but large news that came out on Thursday, because I've been looking at these drugs and saying, well, how much are they going to cost? Well, it's $26,000, $30,000 a year. We said, wait a second, these people, many of them are living on a fixed income, whether it's Social Security and a small pension. They, they can't afford that. But for Medicare that just came out on Thursday and said, any drug for Alzheimer's that is fully approved will be covered. Oh, nice. Now, that to me is just unbelievable, and it's just mind-blowing. Now, the drugs that are on right now are on an accelerated path to get approved, so they're not approved yet. We still need some clinical trials. But for, for Medicare to come out and say, hey, everybody, you know what? We are going to cover these drugs. We know the impact of this. And Medicare has done the math. You know, they're ones that say, wait a second, if we can slow this progression of this illness, we will actually make money. Although we're paying for this drug, we're not paying for long-term care. We're not paying for other uh, complications from this in a the hospital. They have actuaries that have probably done it to say, although it's $26,000 a year, we are going to save X number, and that's why they go ahead and move it for not only doing the right thing to protect the minds of these individuals as they age and get this disease, but also for the financial stability of Medicare. Nice. Well, I'll tell you, I am very excited and and very hopeful. I did not know on the Alzheimer's front that there was so much hopeful progress and hopeful news in the short term and the long term. So, wow, I really appreciate you uh, doing your homework here and passing that along to you. We're talking to uh, to us. To, uh, we're talking to Dr. Kevin Most, who is the chief medical officer at Northwestern Central DuPage Hospital. Uh, we will be back with him with some more talk about medicine. And I'm going to say how I once again thank you because uh, your advice led me to do something that I may not have done. So I want to give you a little kudos, but that'll be after this break. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards this morning. But listen anyway, no switching. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards here, WGN Radio, 720 AM. On the line, my guest this morning is Dr. Kevin Most, the Chief Medical Officer at Northwestern Central DuPage Hospital. Uh, Dr. Most, um, I did want to just say one thing, too. Um, do you think, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of high-profile people, uh, Bruce Willis uh, at, a, at a young age, oh my gosh, in his, in his mid to late 60s, uh, and at the same time, someone like Tony Bennett, who was diagnosed in his late 80s and 90s, um, is, is, is it still in terms of talking about Alzheimer's disease? We're talking about that because June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. Um, does it help when a high-profile person, unfortunately, comes down with, with this disease? Uh, does it help in, in drawing the awareness and taking some of the stigma and taking some of the fear and taking some of the mystery away from it? I think it helps. I think it helps in two ways. One it kind of gets it uh, personalized, right? So, boy, if they can get it, anybody can get it. They're not protected from this illness, so certainly that happens. And I think, like, well, like you just said, I mean, Rosalind Carter this week is right. that she's suffering from dementia. Yeah. It just, again, it raises that awareness. And I think, you know, as a celebrity, two things can happen. One is just the general awareness by coming out and saying, hey, I'm suffering from this. You know, uh, think about it. You know, look for these signs and symptoms. But probably the other thing that's huge is if you take somebody like Michael J. Fox, who has just taken Parkinson's and raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars towards this. So being a celebrity and having an illness, the way the celebrity handles it, whether they come out publicly and share it and look for support and and encourage others to do it, 
or the Michael J. Fox Foundation, you know, encouraging people to say, hey, this is a terrible illness. Help us raise money to make sure that we can get rid of this illness and find out more about it. So, you know, I think it's always good that we have celebrities that share with us what's going on with their lives. It just raises awareness for each of those illnesses. Yeah, it's such a it, it is such a, uh, a, a the horrific really is the only word I can think about it uh, from personal experience. I have to tell you um when someone who is so important to you and someone that you love um, with all your heart looks at you in the eye and says, are you my son? Wow. Uh, it, yeah. it takes a while to digest that and to to come back from that. And, um, and that's the realities of this. And so hopefully, as I said, as time mm-hmm. goes on, we will take tests. We will try to be more preventive. Some of this mystery will go away because, believe me, you don't want to hear those that question uh, given to you. And if you know a loved one um, who will be older and, and, and you know may possibly uh, be coming down with this, you will want them to take those preventive measures that Dr. Most was talking about before. Hopefully that there will be some tests that give people some insight that they may be coming down with this in 10 years and take that fear factor away and take that mystery away so that we can head this off at the pass before the horrific um, results of what this disease can do can affect your loved one and you because uh, because that's that still stays a memory when my mom looked at me in the eye and said are you my son wow jim you you raise a really good point that people uh, need to understand too is that there's two victims here there's not only the patient who's obviously the, the most important victim but like you just said how that impacted you and how that made you feel and people have to understand that that's, they have to get to that point. And you do, you feel bad, you feel sorrowful, but you also want to make sure that the, the quality of life as well as the quantity of life for these individuals is as positive as possible with the uh, illness that they have. And I have to thank you um, because a few weeks ago I was uh, on here with Dean and we were talking about COVID. It's still around. It's still not gone. It may never be gone, as you have said. We're still going to be dealing with it on some basis. We may be getting uh, annual shots and things like that. And ironically, um, right after you talked about that, later in that week, I learned that I was exposed to several people that came down with COVID. And because you had suggested that if you were over a certain age and maybe you had some um, some other kind of uh, uh, you know issues that you should get that fourth booster. I went and got my booster, so I am reboosted. I am reboosted. I am. I am saying, get out of here, COVID. Not today. <laughs> so thank you. So listen, listen anyway. It fits in. So listen anyway, and get a shot anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. Kevin Most, uh, the Chief Medical Officer at Northwestern Central DuPage Hospital, thank you so much for taking time away from not only your golf game, but I'm sure you'll be heading off to Soldier Field because I know you're a Swifty, and you will be seeing the final Taylor Swift show. So if you are if you are going there, please get me a hoodie, and uh, I'll pay you back. You got it, Jim. Take care. Always fun talking to you. Okay, take care. Have a good Sunday. Dr. Kevin Most, the Chief Medical Officer at Northwestern Central DuPage Hospital. That's the sound of Taylor Swift. Chicago is officially in Swifty mode. The pop queen has set up camp here at Soldier Field for the last two nights on Friday and Saturday. 
And the final show will be tonight at Soldier Field. I believe it starts at 6.30. I'm sure people are already lining up, not only to maybe find some straight tickets, but most importantly, to get that all-important Taylor Swift merchandise. T-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, friendship bracelets, anklets, whatever they're selling. Whatever, whatever Taylor's selling, I'm sure... Her fans are buying it up as long as well as, from what I'm hearing, a 45 song set list. That's impressive. That I mean, I you know I've been to Bruce Springsteen's concerts that have been three and a half hours, and you know his songs are are a little longer, but usually maybe 27, 28 songs, but 45 songs. Wow! I mean, at least you know she broke down. You know she 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 crashed Ticketmaster. When these tickets went on sale, but at least it sounds like she's giving everybody their their money's worth for those who got the the lucky Willy Wonka tickets, the golden ticket. And uh, yes, yeah, they're an intermission. <laughs> well, that's why. Yeah, halftime. <laughs> How can there be with forty five songs? I mean, I think the first show is still probably going on. Then they should call it the Swifty Bowl. My gosh, I, I don't mean to open up this can of worms, but Uh-oh. please, what? is is she this generation's Elvis? Beatles, well, you know, you know it's, what, a, it's a good thing that you say that, because I was going to say, you know, every generation, it seems, has their own big star, certainly. And, you know, this is, I mean, you know, three nights, as I said before, three nights at Soldier Field, that's close to, you know, at least almost 180 to 200,000 people. So that's pretty impressive to be able to pull that off. Not to mention the people outside. They're listening, oh, yeah. apparently. Some people totally. are just camping out listening outside. Yeah. And... uh but, you know, it's like in the 60s, you had your Janis Joplins and uh, your Aretha Franklins and your Tina Turners. And then in the 70s, uh, well, Tina was around, too. And then, uh, you know, everybody sort of had their own area. You know, Diana Ross with the Supremes and Barbara Streisand and then Cher and then Olivia Newton-John in the 70s. And then, of course, the 80s with Madonna and the 90s with Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. But and would, then- would, all of, would any of those... Sell out Soldier Field three days in a row. I don't say? know. Uh, I'm, that's what I was going to say. Is that you've had you know Britney and Beyonce or Beyonce? I, I could see maybe Britney, Britney during that and, time, and Beyonce maybe and Adele. Yeah, Beyonce, and, yeah. But my gosh, uh, three. You, you just you have to be impressed by that. And uh, so I was like, how do I, a middle aged white guy, uh, compete? Compete and cover <laughs> this. This with uh, with any kind of uh, legitimacy, and the best way I thought was I've got to talk to a couple of real dyed in the wool Swifties, and so on the phones right now I have two dyed in the wool longtime Swifty fans who have seen Taylor not only in the past but went to see the show on Friday, so they can provide us not only with a review of how the show was, and we'll find out if there was that intermission, but also for those of you going tonight for night three, if you haven't gone yet and tonight's your your only show, a little preview of what you may uh, come to expect here. So on my line, I've got Elena and Marissa Wilkins, actually a nice set of twins and an also set of Swifties. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Jim. So let me start with Elena first here. That I'm just flipping a coin. Who actually, uh, you guys are twins. Who's oldest by who was born first? I am, Elena. So Elena, okay, then I'll start with you. That's okay. <laughs> just sorry, Marissa, but you know, you know, she was the first out, so you know. 
That's okay. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, uh, how long would you say that you and your sister have been Swifties? So, this morning, Marissa actually looked up the date specifically because <laughs> our parents went to see Faith Hill and Tim McGraw, and it was 2007 when she when they were both were here, and Taylor was their opener act. And so they came home after the concert, and they told me and Marissa, they're like, you are going to love their opening. Um, and I can't remember if they brought home her, her debut CD that night or if it was like a couple days afterwards when we got the CD, but it was, that, that started it. And we should say that that makes sense because many people have, may have forgotten or maybe never even knew that Taylor Swift started as a country artist. Yes, and then country. And then she pivoted into the pop uh, genre, and that's when everything really exploded. But she certainly had a very good uh, early career and popular career as a country singer, which a lot of people don't remember that so did Olivia Newton-John started as a country singer. Her first couple of hits, she actually won a Grammy Award um, for a country song, Let Me Be There. So that's not unprecedented, but uh, it is interesting how she went from the country world into the um, into the pop world. So Marissa, uh, what what is it about Taylor? I mean, now, so how old were you both at the time? Would you say so? We were we were eight. <laughs> I did, did the math this morning. <laughs> uh, we were eight when we started listening to Taylor, and we've been listening to her ever since. Um, but I think part of it about Taylor is she always writes about her life, so it's always really relatable. So even though she came out, she came out with a song called Fifteen. We were probably ten, eleven. By the time you're fifteen, like you. We already knew all the lyrics. You're very, it's very relatable. Um, and then later, you know, there's song 22. Now we're past that as well. But I think it's just the fact that she writes about her own experiences. Even if you haven't experienced anything like that, you understand, right? It's things that you're going through, things your friends have been going through, just a, f- a fun song that you like just because of the way it sounds. So there's really any song, any album, there's something that you can connect to. And I think part of it is just because of her range, especially now, the range of genres that she's crossed into and the range of she has really emotional, slower songs and really upbeat, uh, poppy songs. So I think it's there's really something there for everybody uh, if, if you're willing to dive into the world of Taylor Swift. Well, you know, that's that's the, and it's funny that you say that because that's the way I felt too. When I was growing up, um, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan and, and he's like 15 years older than I am. And I always listened to his music as kind of a a signpost of what was ahead just like you're saying like he was going he was talking about things that were happening to him at the time and then as i grew older i started to understand i i sort of he was sort of like a signpost or a guidepost for me and then when i was at the age where he was when he was writing those songs i better understood what he was talking about so i always looked at his music in the same way uh, sort of 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 giving me some little hints as to what was on the way in the future that I could look forward to or be on the lookout for as the same way, no negative yes, or positive. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So Elena, uh, let's get right to it. Uh, what did you think about the show on Friday? I mean, amazing to say the least. I'm sure that's going to be anyone's response when you ask them. Um, it was great though. I mean, she separated it by eras, like each one of her albums, each had a different theme. Um, but yeah, it was great. No intermission to to answer your question. Oh no, intermission! So f- literally forty five songs, correct? Yep, 
straight through. The only time she was off the stage was a costume change, and she did have quite a few costume changes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I want to say it's like was probably like three hours, maybe a little bit more, that she was singing completely just just her on there. Wow! And so did she do every song you wanted to hear? No, but you know, I think that's because <laughs> she did forty-five she, songs, and there was still a song that you didn't that she didn't do. <laughs> Oh, these poor artists, um, they cannot they cannot please everybody. Forty five songs and you're still upset that they didn't play a song. Jim, <laughs> she has almost two hundred twenty two per Yeah, it was twenty two percent of her whole discography. So it was not uh, not everything. <laughs> wow. So uh Marissa, tell me about uh the what was the atmosphere? Uh, around what was the age group was it was this a bonding experience for friends was it a bonding experience for maybe for daughters and moms were there any dads there what what was the scene what's the scene like when we go to soldier field all of the above so um we had it like in our section there was a five-year-old girl she had a sign that said my name's also taylor and i'm five um (laughs) we know a sixth grader who's going tonight and she and her friends are super excited about the show um, we, as you mentioned before, we're 24. So like there were a lot of people our age, a lot of people in high school. There was a group of friends in front of us who, if I had to guess, were early to mid thirties. Um, there were dads, there were husbands, boyfriends, there were groups of guys there together. <laughs> it was everything. Um, everyone was so excited and it's recently been it for this tour. It's been a thing that people have been making bracelets and trading them with each other. So oh. I got a couple bracelets from random strangers. Um, oh, wow, that's cool. So that that was really fun. That was new. That hasn't really happened before. Um, but yeah, a lot of people there with their friends, their sisters, their moms. Um, it was it was a, a big mix of everything. So uh, Elena, tell me, uh, did you get any Taylor merch? I did not. I had a couple of friends. They went. So they opened. I think merch stands at Soldier Field at like 12 on Friday early. <laughs> oh my god. Um, and the show so started at what time what, what what time did she go on stage? You she remember? went on stage at 8 o'clock. And they were there at noon buying things? Yep. <laughs> Hilarious. So you didn't get anything how about you Marissa? Did you get I mean no no hoodie, no t-shirt? No, we did not. The lines it, it was busy everywhere, but anytime there were people standing in one spot, it was a merchandise line that like you couldn't even see the table. Oh my god. Like they were so far away, they were <laughs> stand still. These things were selling out so fast, it was crazy. We're talking to Elena and Marissa Wilkins who are self-professed Swifties. They have been since they were about 5 years old. So almost 20 years now. That's pretty uh, pretty amazing. I should talk. I've been an Elton fan for almost 50 years. But uh, you, they, they attended the show on Friday. It sounds like you guys had a great time. We're going to continue our swift talk here at WGN 720 AM. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards this morning. But listen anyway. We'll be back with more Swifty talk after this. No switching. We are in Taylor Swift mode right now. Taylor Swift has taken over Chicago. This weekend with sold-out shows both on Friday and Saturday and one remaining tonight. On our phone lines, we have two Swifties, so two self-professed Swifties who have been fans for more than 20 years of Taylor, uh, Taylor Swift. They've seen her in concert before, and they have seen her this stand here in Chicago. They went on Friday night, Elena and Marissa Wilkins. Uh... 
Elena, where does this show how how uh, where does this one stand in terms of the, the times you've seen Taylor? Uh, where does this one stand in terms of how good a show it was? Oh, I mean, I think every one of her shows have always just been top in my books compared to concerts, but this one I think definitely is the highest ranked. She had dancers and set changes and everything. Um, And as you mentioned, so many songs were performed. I think one of the other reasons I just like love seeing her perform live is she talks to the audience a lot. She makes it so personalized. Um, She mentioned Pride Month and she was just kind of talking about everything. And that's just why we've always loved to see her. I think, though, even like one of her first tours, um, I know when we saw the Speak Now one was kind of the first concert I saw where there was like all these massive sets and dance numbers. And it was like a show, like almost like a play or musical. It was crazy. And I mean, she's just been kept she's just kept doing it for all of her shows. But this one is definitely the best. Marissa, I have a question here speaking from uh, the male perspective. If I was a single guy, right? Yeah. W- would it have been smart for me to get a ticket to this show? <laughs> I mean, only only if you know all the words. No, none of the Swifties are going to respect you for going to the show alone unless you know what you're doing. Yeah, but my point I, is this is like this is like the ultimate online dating app. I, I mean, mean, I mean, I've got a for Swifties. I've got a captive audience here, right? I mean, I would. What would you say? Ninety percent uh, women, right? Um, I mean, I, I would maybe closer to like eighty, but they're they're all going to be looking at Taylor. So good, good luck <laughs> to you. If that's, if that's the mission. Now, Jack, our producer, uh, you've got a sister that's around the same age as Marissa and Elena, right? Yeah, and she's age. going tonight. Tonight, yeah, she got tickets somehow and. <laughs> She's very excited to go. We've been having a countdown. Oh, really? Ever since. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jack and I, uh, we were before the show started. I'm like, okay, we got to play some Taylor Swift songs. And Marissa was nice enough to to send me some um, suggestions. But you know, you know, Jack and I looked at each other, and I'm like, what what should we play? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so maybe uh, I would have to if I if I decide to go first, I would have to get divorced. But if I was <laughs> decided to go to the next Taylor Swift show, I guess I should brush up on my Taylor Swift songs. Before I go there, because if uh, if you're a novice, I guess what you're saying is that uh, that the Swifties will definitely pick you out. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited uh, for you guys that you got to see. I know how it is uh, to see one of your favorite musical performers. They said, I've been to, to more than 200 Elton John shows. And uh, I never get tired of seeing it. We were talking to, to Jess in our, um, in our newsroom, and, and she said, you know, a couple of my friends went, are going to all three shows. He's like, why would, why would somebody do that? And I says, well, I can't, I can't say anything bad about that because when Elton's in town, they say, well, which show did you go to? And I say, well, how many were there? That's how many I've gone to. So, uh, but you were lucky to see opening night, which is always exciting. Uh, so I'm happy for you because, as I said, I know how exciting it is to, uh, to be in that uh, that kind of uh, arena with with people that uh, enjoy the same music you do, and there's that person right up there uh, performing for you. So I'm glad that you guys had uh, a good time. Uh, will you be there for the next one? The for next tour? tour? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. If we can make it happen, we'll be there. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a good time, and thank you for taking time out. Um, might you go uh, to try to get some uh, you know tickets on the street maybe and maybe see another show or no are you are you satisfied 
Yeah, I mean, I was, she went on it. Yes. Oh, you wanted yes, to go all three I nights? Also, she went on at 8 o'clock, Jim, and I by 8.05, I was like, I'm satisfied. That was amazing. <laughs> if it was just that, I would have been happy. Oh, very good, very good. Elena and Marissa Wilkins, who are uh, two uh, dyed-in-the-wool, self-professed Swifties, uh, thanks for the review and the preview. And um, go back. Now, what is that song, Shake It What? Shake it off. Shake it off. See, I would not have done well if I went there. <laughs> Could you play the Shake It song? <laughs> uh, thank you for the update. I'm glad you had a good time. And uh, Swifties forever. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jim. Take care. Elena and Marissa Wilkins. I'm Jim Toronto, filling in for Dean Richards here on Sunday at 720. Uh, WGN AM. Uh, after the uh, the news here, we're going to do our theater segment with a play that is very near and dear to my heart because I'm in it. Today's theater segment, which is a part of uh, every Dean Richards show, I'm very excited to uh, be taking part in because um, it's a play that's very close to my heart because it's very close to my mind and my body because I am in it. I'm currently appearing in a production of The Crucible, Arthur Miller's still relevant fictionalized history of the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. And today's guest is my friend and my director, Charles Eskenizer, who is the founding, uh, the founder and the director of um, the current production at Invictus Theater here in Chicago. Welcome, Charles. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. Um, I joke, this is my the second play that I've done with Invictus and with Charles at the helm. And so I have enjoyed my experience so much working with Charles and the entire Invictus team. And he puts together such a, a talented cast every time. Um, the, the last year was a, was a very special year for Invictus. Uh, nominated for how many uh, Joseph Jefferson Awards last year? Uh, thir- 13. 13? Yeah. <laughs> and, my gosh, we, over, uh, what, two plays, 13 nominations. Uh, I'm proud to say that our show got, what, how many, prom- we got, what, uh, five or six of those? I, yeah, I, I think it was something like that, six, six maybe, maybe even seven. Maybe I, even I seven. Know. I think it was seven, <laughs> <lost> actually. <laughs> and our production of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf won uh, four Jefferson Awards, Jeff Awards, which are, which are akin to uh, the Tony Awards on Broadway, including yeah. one not only for Charles for Best Director, but also for oh. Best Production of a Play. So Best Play. It was very cool to win that final uh, award of the night. We all got to go upstage. It was uh, on stage. It was very exciting. And um, so I like to joke to say to Charles yeah. that um, now we're working in another play together. So uh, he is, uh, I, uh, you know, He's Martin Scorsese, and I'm his Robert De Niro. If you call, good to, good to talk to you again. <laughs> yes, Marty. If when you call, I answer. But uh, I'm very proud of this uh, new production, and and certainly Charles is too at the Invictus Theater, which is at 1106 uh, Thorndale in Chicago in the Edgewater neighborhood, storefront theater. Um, what Charles? What do? Uh, our production of The Crucible and Taylor Swift have in common. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to tie it to Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. Well, I, I, I would, I would imagine that that both both uh, both shows are sold out. Right? Yes, I, correct. I, you are I, correct, sir. 
They are both sold out runs, and I mean, you know, hey, look, Taylor's got a you know three three nights at Soldier Field. That's pretty impressive. But we have what four weeks of sold out shows at Invictus. Yeah, twenty four performances. Wow, yeah. very. Is that the first time that a run at Invictus, the entire run, has been sold out? I I want to say it is we um at least this early and usually usually you know it picks up um as we get towards the end and reviews come out and you know word of mouth gets out and the final weekends sell out but this one i mean we we sold out really quickly and uh our production of ruined last year lynn nottage's ruined which is a really beautiful powerful piece um that that one sold out pretty quickly too but this this one might might have even surpassed that well, uh, explain to me, um, uh, the, I, I'm, Arthur Miller is one of my favorite playwrights, and so I was very excited when, when you told me even last year uh, that, <laughs> that you were going to be doing The Crucible. Um, I was saying I'm definitely going to audition for that. Um, yeah. Explain to me why you chose, here's a play that was written 70 years ago this year, in fact, 1953, mm-hmm. um, uh, about uh, not only the Salem Witch Trials, but also uh, kind of an allegory of, at the time, um, the McCarthy uh, era Red yeah. Scare. So, why did you choose to do the do the Crucible in 2023? Oh my goodness! Well, it, so I, I planned uh, our season around a theme, and our our season this year was rhetoric and groups. So, our fall Shakespeare show was Julius Caesar, and that was exploring rhetoric and how it incites violence. You know, these uh, senators get together and essentially um, they murder the the leader of of Rome uh, right in front of everybody and then try to manipulate the crowds with their rhetoric and uh, and it goes pretty badly for them and then uh, we followed that up with the mountaintop which uh, explored Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy and how he shaped the civil rights movement with his rhetoric and then now with the crucible um, you know we're looking at uh, the rhetoric of of groupthink and mass hysteria and um, this play, I, I mean, you, you said it already earlier that it's it's very, very relevant. And, I mean, back in the 1600s, late 1600s, when the Salem Witch Trials were happening, to McCarthyism, to right now, it's looking at this polarized society, these people that are divided, and these societies that are quite literally eating themselves, like destroying themselves from the inside out. And so I, I read the play, and I, I about a year ago when I was planning the season, I, I just couldn't couldn't sleep that night because i was so excited to to produce it yeah and one of the, the great things about invictus it is one of the great storefront theaters in chicago if you've if you've been to oh, some of the big <laughs> one of the big houses in chicago certainly downtown or or in the suburbs it's great to see a big show there's no question about that yeah. uh, but there's also um a, a huge huge advantage of going to a show in a theater like invictus that has maybe 40 seats at best uh, you're yeah. so close to the action. I think that's what makes uh, the show has gotten some great reviews, and I've been very excited and proud of those reviews. And I think one reason is because the audience, just like our production of Virginia Wolf last year was, the yeah. audience is so close that you can feel the acting, and this play as written is so intense. And I think the, yes. the, the, the smallness of the theater and the way that uh, Kevin Rolfs has, has done the uh, the set design, it just brings the audience right into it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
I, I mean, one of, one of the challenges, but it's a, a beautiful challenge um, of our space is the intimacy of it. And like you said, I mean, it's something that you don't get at the big house theaters is you are right up in the action when you're an audience member here. I mean, you can, in some cases, feel the, the actors spit <laughs> playing <laughs> on you and, and, uh, and, you know, see the intensity in their eyes, which, you know, in, in some of the bigger house theaters, you know, you're, you're quite distant. So you can't, you can't really get that experience, but this is, I mean, near immersive. Um, but yeah, one of the challenges that we face with our, our space because it is so small is, you know, what do we do with all of our, with our actors and, and our patrons to some extent as well too, with our confined space. And, uh, so I had the idea when I was looking at this show, it's a big cast of, well, why don't we just have them all on stage at, at once? And then it kind of, Kevin and I were talking and I was like, well, there's so much social pressure and this town is in a crucible, a, a test, and they are um, undergoing this process and it's the town's on trial right from the very beginning. So it's we've kind of set it up like these juror stands where um, the actors are on stage sitting essentially on trial right when the audience walks in. So it's a very tense environment to walk into right off the bat. It, it, I think it sets the tone for the piece beautifully. With the uh, And also there's some great music. Um, uh, what is Petter's last name? I apologize. Walbeck. Yeah, Petter Walbeck uh, does some great yeah. job with the, with the sound. It's almost very Twin Peaks-like with this droning... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the 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 coolest thing is, as, as, as Charles says, when the show starts, uh, the entire cast is sitting uh, and, and almost like jury box pews on each side of the stage, and when and there's this droning music, and when the the audience walks in, they see us, and they hear this music, and usually before any show, people are always before the show starts, they're always talking and blah, 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 you know, <laughs> din of people. But when people walk into this, they feel like they have actually walked into Salem. They've walked into the meeting house or the courtroom and, and no one talks. The audience sits there and because we're sitting there when they walk in. So there's like a good 10 minutes before the show starts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool to watch watch people go in and just kind of see them gasp and, yeah. and just quietly take their seat. It's 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 a. I mean, it, it, the idea was that we wanted to make the interior of our space like one of those colonial meeting houses, and I, I think we succeeded because people their, their breath is taken away once they once they walk into our space. Yeah, it's 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 just really a, a fun production to see and to be a part of. Uh, I'm talking to Charles Eskenizer, who is the founder and the artistic director at the Invictus Theater here in Chicago, and also director of its current production, The Crucible, of which I am co-starring in, and very proud to be a part of this this great show and this ultimately and uh, talented cast. Everybody is yeah. so good, and everybody's bringing it every night. And they, as Charles said, the intensity is there from before you even, as soon as you open the door, before the show starts, you can feel the intensity. And uh, I think Arthur Miller would certainly be proud. We're going to continue to talk about The Crucible uh, right after this. Uh, I am Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards. But listen anyway. We'll be back after this. No switching on the phone and my guest uh, for this theater segment right now is Charles Askenizer who is the the founder artistic director of uh, Invictus Theater here in Chicago 1106 Thorndale um, and also the director of its current and sold out um, production of The Crucible and I also should mention um, Jeff recommended once again (laughs) 
So yeah. uh, once again, uh, Marty, uh, uh, I said <laughs> that Charles is my Martin Scorsese. I'm hopefully his Robert De Niro. Uh, we're two for two <laughs> with Jeff recommended shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. You know, I, I have I have to say regarding regarding all that and the, you know the positive press and everything that we received about the show. You know, it, it, these shows are such a massive undertaking, and they really can't be done without the talents of our our artists, our board, our company. Um, you know, I I wake up when we were doing rehearsals before we got into performances. I wake up just so grateful and excited to come into the theater and work with all these talented, brilliant people. So, you know, any sort of credit that we're getting, it's, it's really a credit to, to all of them and all of you. And, and you, you're, you're one of those, Jim. <laughs> your, your, your talents are, are shining. I, I keep having people come out being like, ooh, I love to hate him. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, well if, I, if people say that, then I've done my job. I do want to mention uh, that this really, truly is a, a great ensemble piece. There are so many talented people. Mark Pratt is, uh, is the, uh, the, the lead char- character of John Proctor. Devin Carson yeah. is Elizabeth. Michaela Voigt is Abigail Williams, Joseph Beale is Reverend Paris, Charlie Diaz is Reverend Hale, Frank Nall is Giles Corey. I, I'm sorry, there's so it's, there's 19, 20 people. I can't go to the whole <laughs> list, but those are some of the main people. But everybody in this cast um, is is engaged uh, and is bringing their all, and I think that's one reason why the show is um, is so. Uh, entertaining uh, for the audiences uh, that have seen it, as well as fun for us to do. Uh, as I said about our production of Virginia Wolf last summer, and I will say this, is that I wish I could see this show. <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm in it. Uh, you know, Ringo Starr had a great line. He said, I would love to have seen the Beatles, but unfortunately, I was drumming. <laughs> you know, and that's the same way I feel here. Um, uh, it's 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 just uh, it's so fun. It and what's what's interesting is uh, it's out of two. We've both been to Salem, Massachusetts, and it's yeah. it's a, it, where where this play took place. This, as I said before, it's a fictionalized uh, version of the Salem witch trials. All the characters are real people, but the action, of course, has been uh, has been elevated and uh, and changed uh, creatively for for dramatic purposes. But all the people are real. But isn't Salem kind of an odd little town? Oh, it's it's so strange. I mean, no offense to anyone from Salem. I, I'm from New England, and I you know I adore all of New England. But it, it's very unsettling that you you go there and you know the historical context of of these witch trials and you know innocent people died and you know people's lives were destroyed and you know what happened in salem was just like a smaller portion of what happened all across europe thousands and thousands of people were um accused and killed because they were uh, called witches and so it's odd to go there knowing that historical context and then you know, if you walk down the main street of Salem, it's all these commercial shops about witches, and right. it's, it's it's just very unsettling. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I enjoy uh, working with you so much, and uh, I um, and, and the the team that you've put no. together at Invictus, uh, really uh, the 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 accolades that the theater is getting now certainly are well deserved. Um, as I said, five you, Jefferson Awards last year, uh, four of them for Thank our you. production of uh, Virginia Woolf, which I am so proud of. Uh, I was nominated, yeah. so I can at least say I was Jeff nominated. I didn't win, but that's yes, fine. yeah. 
that's a but, big big recognition as well oh yeah no no but like i said and, and i put so much of that uh whatever i was able to do and i'm able to do uh i thank you for that so much the current uh the current production of a crucible at the invictus theater 1106 thorndale i would love to say get tickets now but unfortunately or fortunately <laughs> we are sold out um, yeah. So that's very exciting to to be able to say. Uh, looking forward to a matinee performance right after I leave here. So yeah. um, we will be hanging some witches this afternoon uh, in Edgewater. <laughs> if you can, if you are walking down Thorndale, you may hear some uh, some gallows creaking uh, down the street. <laughs> Charles Eskenizer is the founder and artistic director of Invictus Theater. Um, and you will be announcing your new 2023-24 uh, season, I think, soon, correct? Yeah, be- beginning of July is our is our goal to to announce our next season, and that'll that'll start with our fall Shakespeare show in in October. Okay, very good. Thank you so much, Charles. I will see you in a couple of hours. Thank you, Jim. We we really appreciate it, and, and take care. We'll see. Okay, you. thank you, Charles Askenizer of Invictus Theater. Jim Toronto with you here on Sunday morning. Filling in for Dean Richards. But listen anyway. <laughs> I well, Before I get to my next guest here, I want to uh, also say that, uh, you know, obviously Chicago is Taylor Swift obsessed this entire weekend with the, uh, the pop princess, if you will. Three sold out shows at Soldier Field. Pretty impressive uh little accomplishment there but uh i think it's also important to not forget that she's not the only swift of prominence do you remember jonathan swift the satirist the author the essayist i remember jonathan quick the goaltender (laughs) same thing right i remember jonathan taves well him too (laughs) he was swift Jonathan Swift is remembered for his work such as A Tale of a Tub, An Argument Against Abolishing Christianity, Gulliver's Travels, and A Modest Proposal. He's regarded by the Encyclopedia Britannica as the foremost prose satirist in the English language. Take that, Taylor. Right. So, shake it off. Nice. Nice. Did you say the song Bad Blood? Is that one of her songs? That's a song, yes. See now, what if you now? This goes to show you my age and my my perspective. When you say bad blood, I think of Neil Sedaka and Elton John from 1975. Of course, <laughs> wow, crickets on that side. <laughs> it's, a, it's an evocative name, bad blood. So yeah, so throughout the show, I'll be continuing to talk about uh, uh, some um, some uh, Swift news, some other prominent Swifts. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. Taylor has earned, uh, you know. Her place, but uh, let's not forget satirist Jonathan Swift. I don't think there's any relation, but um, he he went out. If you remember, if you know anything about, I mean, Gulliver's Travels, obviously a classic. But a modest proposal. The modest proposal. Talk about satire. Uh, was that we should probably start to eat children because there's a famine going on, and people read this as if he was serious. That's how you know somebody's a good satirist when people believe it. That's like when, you know, uh, Spinal Tap became a real band. <laughs> so, Jonathan Swift, we, we salute you as we uh, celebrate all things Swift here this weekend in Chicago. Uh, if you are a comic book fan, uh, then 
This is something that I think you might uh, find interesting because I didn't know this existed. But first, let's start this uh, segment with uh, one of the great themes. So nobody can deny or doubt the impact that uh, comic books have had, not only for the last 60, 70, 80 years, but certainly in the last 20 to 25, uh, they have completely changed Hollywood. Most films today, the big blockbusters, the tentpole films, are all based on comic books, whether it's DC Comics or Marvel. And um, what I wanted to talk about today is something I just learned as part of uh, being involved, as I talked to you a little earlier today about this production I'm in right now, uh, in the theater of The Crucible. One of my uh, castmates, Mark Pract, was talking about, he's a big comic book aficionado, um, and he's a writer, and we will get into his uh, his background on that. But he was talking, we're talking about The Crucible here, which was an allegory about the McCarthy-era hearings uh, weeding out communism in supposed communists in the United States government, which led to all the blacklists and, and such censorship. And Mark started to tell the story of a play that he has written that had a similar kind of censorship and a congressional oversight about comic books. Mark Pract uh, joins us today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me, Jim. So you are, have uh, you been a comic book fan all your life? Yeah. Um, first thing I can ever remember reading on my own was a, a Batman comic book when I was about five. Which, um, which, which, Batman, Batman number what? <laughs> um, it was actually the Brave and the Bold number one forty six. <laughs> I knew you'd know it. Was it. A, <laughs> it was a team up between Batman and the Unknown Soldier. Oh wow! And they were taking on Nazis. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so um, yeah, there's no like I said. Uh, certainly, um, and and I really came I, when I was uh, a, a, a little kid, and, and I'm a little older than you, but um, I, I I I read comic books, but not a lot. And it's so funny the way the whole genre has been elevated. I mean, comic books used to be printed on the worst stock paper with the worst um, coloring and inking, and now they are graphic novels on high-quality paper, and they're, they're works of art. Yeah. I mean, we're... Well, I mean, I would, I would argue they were always works of art, ah, but, <laughs> uh, but that's, just, that's my bias. But so. weren't they like... They were like 10 or 15 cents. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the way it's, it's evolved. And um, and certainly, as I said, it's taken over uh, the um, the subject matter for Hollywood. I remember mm-hmm. in the late to mid eighties, uh, I w- would would you agree that Frank Miller was pretty much um, responsible for the renaissance of 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 comic books when he did the Dark Knight Returns? Um, absolutely, uh, it's really the the renaissance of comics in the eighties was was Dark Knight Returns, which was Frank Miller, and then also Alan Moore's Watchmen. They both came out within six months of each other and changed the industry completely. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I remember I remember I did pick that up. I did get the mm-hmm. I still have my original copy of the Dark Knight Returns, mm-hmm. and it was the art was so compelling, and it was a different side to Batman. It was a darker uh, ver- version of Batman, which apparently then played a, a big role in Tim Burton's film, which basically yeah, changed Hollywood. Mm-hmm. True. So tell me. So while we're sitting at rehearsal one day, Mark is mm-hmm. talking about. Um, this play that he has just written, and we'll talk about that as well. And he's explaining how in the 1950s, very similar to what the Crucible did with the with the congressional kind of hearing and oversight, there was a congressional oversight committee based on comic books? Um, yeah, it's uh, the overreaching subject matter was juvenile delinquency. But uh, they really zoomed in on the comic books after Frederick Wortham, Dr. Frederick Wortham, published a book called The, uh, the Seduction of the Innocent, which was about how comic books were turning children into psychopaths and homosexuals and deviants and uh, all sorts of other horrible things. And uh, that was sort of the basis, and they, they used that to springboard uh, these the Senate hearings that were actually televised on TV, uh, you know, they were televised. So, uh, what year was it? This? Was, uh, 54. Wow. And so this is right at the same time that the McCarthy hearings are going on too, right? Pretty close. Pretty close. Same era. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, were they, so in other words, this was under the umbrella of juvenile delinquency and why were Correct. comic books contributing to do, to do, to do, what was, what was the evidence or what was the, the allegations? Well, I mean, there was a wide range of things. The, the printing, uh, you talking about how they were printed on poor paper with bad, bad color. Uh, there were people who suggested that that was ruining children's eyes. Uh, <laughs> the subject matter was, uh, and and one thing you have to understand about the early fifties in comic books is that it was a it was a, a period where the superhero comics had kind of fallen away. Um, the only real superhero comics that were still being published at that point were uh, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and the industry had moved towards. Uh, what they called true crime comics and also horror comics. And uh, the preeminent publisher at that time was EC Comics, uh, which stood for Entertaining Comics. And uh, they published things like Tales from the Crypt, um, crime suspense stories. And so the subject matter was pretty uh, salacious. um, And they also went pretty far with the horror stuff and it was just that subject matter uh i think really and you know there was a rise in juvenile delinquency for whatever reason in the 50s and it was that rock and roll music yeah rock and roll music (laughs) and and there was some suggestion in some of the research i did there was also that that a lot of these young kids their parent their fathers had died during the war and they were being raised by you know uh without uh things uh yeah male role model right but, uh, but yeah, it, it, and, and it was Wortham's, Wortham's book is really what sprang the whole thing. And, uh, he just had, he had a lot of crazy theories about what was what, what kids were picking up from this book. So these were theories. I mean, was any of this stuff proven? <laughs> he, he had much research he quoted in the book. Um, and, uh, some 70 years later, um, 
I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there was there was a uh, grad student who actually went through all of his research that he quoted in his book, and it turned out that none of it had actually been done. It was all hearsay or, uh, you know, friend of a friend sort of thing. And what was the implications then of these congressional hearings and things like that? What what came out of it? Was there censorship? Um, the, the government declined to move forward on any sort of legislation. But what happened specifically was that the industry became so terrified of what happened uh, that they instituted the their own self-censorship board, which was the Commerce Code Authority. And uh, they had a little seal. Uh, you know, when we were growing up, every comic had a little, it looked like a little stamp, and it was said, approved by the Comics Code Authority. <laughs> and uh, it was a very, very restrictive set of rules that they had to follow. And uh, <laughs> some of it was quite ridiculous. And uh, how long is that? Is, is, how, is that code still in, 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 in practice today? <laughs> the code evolved over the years, but eventually, uh, by the late 90s, Everybody pretty much dropped it. So um, it was around fact, for a good 35 or 40 years, though. Yeah, yeah. I wow. mean, it was it was set up in mid-50s, and then in the late 70s, or no, in the late, the early 70s, uh, they did a revision, um, and then they did another revision in the late 80s, and then finally everybody wow. was just decided they were done with it. There was a lot. It sounds like there was between the 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 McCarthy era and now, you know, looking at comic books as a possible. You can't. It's hard to grasp the paranoia that must have been going on in this country at that time. Uh, yeah, it it seems. Uh, yeah, it is the. I, it's hard to fathom that it seems like everybody was looking over everybody else's shoulders and wanting to tell them what they should read or what they should look at or what they should talk about. Yeah, what was normal, right? Everything was normal. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm talking to Mark Pract, who is um, an actor and a playwright. Um, he's uh, actually appearing with me in the current uh, production of The Crucible at Invictus Theater we just talked about a little while ago. Mm-hmm. He's playing the lead uh, character of John Proctor. Um, but after this break, I want to talk to Mark because Mark is not only knowledgeable on this subject and not only an aficionado of comic books, but he's also a playwright and has written a play not only about this specific era in the comic book history, but also uh, you've written other plays or you've got, what, a trilogy of stories? Yeah, I have a trilogy of plays about the the history of the industry. Yeah, so we'll talk about that right after this break. I'm Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards here at WGN, 7.20 a.m., but listen anyway. Stay tuned, no switching. Jim Toronto with you this morning, filling in for Dean Richards, but listen anyway. On my phone, and my guest uh, during this segment is Mark Pract, who is um, an actor and a playwright here in Chicago and a comic book historian and aficionado. Uh, we're talking about the history of comic books and, and how in the 1950s there was, I never knew this, there was a a government, it was a Senate committee? What, what, is that what it was? Yeah, it was Senate Senate hearing. Uh, Senate committee hearing. Uh, what was the official title of the committee? Do you remember, or do you know? Uh, the, it was the Senate he- Senate committee on juvenile delinquency. Oh, on so, juvenile, and then the comic books yeah. fell underneath that umbrella. Yeah, um, that became but, the focus of it. But yeah, so comic books were under 
scrutiny for their for their content and then the code was was developed from this to, that comic books could show this or couldn't do, do that um so or even what they could be titled i mean <laughs> uh, the, the code the code uh you could not have the word uh horror in the title of a comic book <laughs> you couldn't have the word crime in the title of a comic book wow uh and you it, know it, it, uh, yeah go ahead uh, it's uh, the the the, co- the the really sort of insidious thing about the comics code is it was sort of set up to put the leading publisher out of business. Uh, the most popular comic book publisher at the time was EC Comics, that did uh, Tales from the Crypt and and those type of things. And as you go through the original code, it's basically set up to prevent them from publishing their book. And what's ironic is that here we are in 2023, and we mm-hmm. have several. Uh, school boards in several states that are looking to ban books again. So uh, we have we have changed, and yet we have not changed at all. Yeah, I mean, and one of one of the one of the primary books that they've been working to ban recently is Mouse, which is a a graphic novel, a comic book, essentially about a, a, a family of, of Jews in in Nazi Germany. Wow. So tell me then uh, the development of, of how you took this part of comic book history, and now you've put it into a trilogy of plays. Talk to us about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the four color trilogy, as I'm calling it, uh, which is based on the, the classic printing method, uh, which was four color printing, uh, is is uh, loosely connected. Uh, it's more thematic. Uh, the first one, which was presented last year at City Lit Theater. Uh, what's called the Mark of Cain, and it was about how uh, Bob Kane took credit for creating the character of Batman when he had a partner by the name of Bill Finger who was responsible for much of the characters we know it today, and ultimately he was never given credit during his lifetime and died penniless in 74 um, so that was the first play. Uh, this, the second play is called The Innocence of Seduction, and that's based on the theory that we've been talking about, which is the 50s and the, uh, the rise of the Comics Code and the, the Senate hearings. And then the third one uh, is titled The House of Ideas, and it is about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby uh, and their relationship and the creation of Marvel Comics. And um, so now you will be per, uh, there will be production of the Innocence of Seduction, uh, and tell us mm-hmm. where and when that's going to be happening. Um, that is going to it is going to open the uh, the twenty twenty three twenty twenty four season at City Lit Theater, uh, which is uh, ten twenty West Bryn Mawr. It's inside the Edgewater Presbyterian Church, um, and we will have our first preview on August twenty fifth. And uh, official press opening will be on September 3rd. And how do I get tickets for that? Um, you can go to citylit.org. That's their website. Uh, they have uh, individual tickets and season subscriptions available right now. And you are not uh, appearing on stage, but you will be directing, and you wrote it. Yes. Uh, I wrote the play, and I'll be directing this one. And uh, we'll see what happens next year. Very good. Well, I tell you, I, I remember sitting at rehearsal and hearing you tell the story, and I had no idea that this uh, that this this thing was going on with comic books back in the 50s. Very interesting. Um, there's no question that comic books have taken on a, a very elevated place now in uh, in pop culture. So I'm sure as a longtime comic book here uh, reader, you're happy to see that. 
It's it's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting to see so many people interested in these characters. Very good. Mark Pract, uh, good luck with the show. Thank you for joining us, and I'll see you in a couple hours. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, sir. Okay, we're going to hang How some witches in Salem. <laughs> That's what we do. Okay. Thank you so much, Mark. Take care. Uh, Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards this morning here at WGN AM 720. Uh, after the news, both Joe Brand and Don Kleppen, who will be doing their stuff for you right now, are going to be doing some other stuff. How's that for a tease? Here's Don. I remember Wendy from the Loop days. My goodness. I just saw a picture. We're talking about Wendy's filling in for uh, Bob Surratt. This week, and I was talking with uh, our engineer, Bob, uh, before the show, and he mentioned um, he works with with Bob, um, Bobby, Bobby, the engineer works with Bob uh, on uh, the morning show. And he was uh, saying that Bob is out gallivanting somewhere uh, on a vacation. And he noticed on Bob's Instagram that he had a picture in front of the Great Pyramids of Giza. So Bob and I would assume with Marianne are in Egypt. My wife and I went to Egypt earlier this year. We went to Israel and Egypt to have that same picture. Now, I assume Bob went to Egypt uh, because, as many of you know, uh, for years, uh, Bob was the voiceover, uh, I believe, for both the coal mine uh, and the human heart when you walked into those exhibits at the Museum of Science and Industry. I believe that Bob Surratt did the voice welcoming you into the the coal mine and into uh, the human heart exhibit, just like Dean does that the Victory Auto Records commercial. Uh, so I would assume that maybe Bob is is going there on both business and pleasure. Perhaps he's now doing the voiceover for the uh, Egyptian pyramids well, when you walk in there. Couldn't he have taken a Comrex then to do the show too? <laughs> I mean, you'd think so, right? In today's world. You don't need to be Tom Joyner flying around on planes from Dallas to Chicago. You can do this with just a little flick of the switch. But Bob has that famous picture. My gosh, when I was in Egypt, it was amazing to uh, to see those pyramids. It was. It, it, I, I've always wanted to see them. I don't know why. I'm not an Egyptologist or anything like that. But uh, there was something about they looked so not only mysterious but so unreachable from... Uh, you know, my house on uh, Roscoe and Laverne on the northwest side of Chicago. So it was quite a, it was very kind of uh, internally just uh, earth shattering to see these pyramids up close when you stand there. They are really impressive and, aw- and awe inspiring. Speaking of impressive and awe inspiring, I love the annual event called the Scripps Spelling Bee. I love the Little League World Series from Williamsport every year. Watch that. I'm My goal is to someday go to Williamsport. I really want to see that in person. Um, and I love watching the Bee. I love watching the, the Westminster Kennel Club dog show, which was on earlier the, a few months, a few weeks ago. And I love the Scripps Bee. I always loved spelling when I was in grammar school. I remember in first grade. I won the spelling bee because I brought in a word, Frankenstein. I was able to spell Frankenstein. I thought you meant you get to bring in your own words. I'm like, that's not really Oh, no, fair. we did. We did. Yeah, no, it was weird. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. We did bring in our own word. It sounds unfair. But yeah, it's first it's, grade. It's weighted. Uh, weighted. <laughs> oh, listen to these two. Oh, okay, so you didn't get participation <laughs> trophies, but you got to create your own competition. <laughs> got it. Got it. We're the soft ones. <laughs> wow. 
Wow, Joe attacking me now. Hey, he's he's a competitor. He's fired up for this match. What are you, a yeah. sports guy or what? No, My goodness. I only play one on the radio. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I love the B. Uh, this week was the the twenty uh, the ninety fifth uh, and or the ninety fifth um, National Spelling Bee, uh, sponsored by Scripps, and uh, a Floridian boy named Dev Shah won. He spelled the word. Samophile. Any uh, Joe or uh, I don't know if you please. I mean, in today's world, everybody can Google. How would you spell Samophile? I don't even know where to start. <laughs> would you have any idea that Samophile Samophile starts with a P? Nope. Only because I saw. Oh, when because the kid, when right. The kid well, you last week exactly. Oh, right. Well, and Don was also Samophiling on his way in. So <laughs> right. He knows it well. Right. That's right. But my gosh, uh, wow, what a word. And they went down to like 15 rounds, uh, but uh, he finally won. And so I thought it would be fun. I enjoy, uh, my wife and I sit there and we, we spell along and, and by gosh, these kids really are, uh, are unbelievable. And it's funny because if you go down the line uh, of, in the history, you see the way this entire competition has evolved in terms of now there are kids who just study for this. They have tutors just to win this thing, whereas before it seemed like it was much more casual. In my day, we used to bring in our own uh, words, Joe. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so uh, I thought it would be kind of fun to have the uh, first annual Elton Jim Spelling Bee, and Don and Joe have been kind enough to uh, decide to uh, to take part. Now, I think they thought it was just going to be some kind of a, uh, a little fun little thing, but no, no, no. As you can hear in Joe's voice, now this is a competition. When he heard it's a competition, he's taking it seriously. Unfortunately, there is no trophy. There is no scholarship. Oh, man. There are no prizes, but there are bragging rights. Okay. okay. For the first annual Elton Jim Spelling Bee. I don't know if you got that, but... Fly to the Bumblebee? There you go. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. Well, Thank I wasn't you very nervous much. before, I guess. There's always a connection here, folks. This show works on so many layers, it's like a Bullwinkle cartoon. There's music. I, I feel like no other music really instantly raises your blood pressure like that does. I mean, that one immediately is like, all right, what's going on? That's here? right. All right. So here we are at the first annual Elton Jim Spelling Bee. We've got Joe Brand from where? Oaklawn, Illinois. Oaklawn, Illinois. And Don Kleppen is from where? Morton Grove, Illinois. Morton Grove, Illinois. So we have both the north side and the south side suburbs represented in our first annual B. Now, um, gentlemen. Crosstown B. Oh, the Crosstown B. Very nice. Very nice. You see, you guys are really getting into it. So, gentlemen, please know that uh, I will give you, you will have uh, 30 seconds uh, to, well, no, I think they give them about a minute. I'll give you about a minute uh, to spell the word. And you can, if you would like, and I would ask you to do this because I do have them here. If you need help, um, I can give you the origin of the word. Okay? You can't read it in a sentence? I, I'll make one up if you want to, okay. if you want it use right. yes. So you can just ask, could I have origin or in a sentence, and I'll give you a sentence. Okay. That's acceptable. Okay, so good. I think we'll start, we'll start, um, we'll start easy and we'll get a little harder. Now, uh, 
producer Jack, do you have the uh, official um, sound effects? So if you spell the word correctly, you will hear this. How'd you get a whole... How'd you get a whole live audience to come in for this? Oh, well, this is a big deal, my friend. Yeah. This is WGN Radio. And if you spell it incorrectly, you will hear this. <laughs> so, a little confusing, but all right. Isn't that <laughs> weird that, the, that if you get it wrong, yeah. but that's what they do at the B. Okay. In fact, they made a big deal. The woman who hits the bell, they made a big deal about where she got the bell from. All right. Bell is bad. Clapping. Bell is, is bad. Yeah. Clap is good. Usually in real life, the clap is bad. But here, the clap is good. And that's a good old 50s joke. Your, your parents are laughing at that joke right now. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so let's get started. Um, let's, uh, well, Joe Brand starts with a B. We'll go with Joe first. All right, great. All right. This is for 219, who said their money's on Don, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, 219. Okay, welcome to the B. Um, Joe, welcome. Are you nervous? Yes, very. Okay. Thank well, you for asking. Okay. Uh, your word is mortgage. Okay. Mortgage. Would you like the um would you like the the root of that? Can I phone a friend and call in David Hochberg? <laughs> no, just, I, just so you know, it was from Latin to old French. Okay. Mortgage. M- mortgage. M O R T G A G E mortgage. Very good. Nice. The T. Very good. All right. Those of us, we've always been in the media. We probably all went for jobs and media-related, um, uh, you know, fields here. Did you have to take a spelling test when you took uh, when you went for any kind of a job? Me? Yeah. Any, well, I mean, we, we got to write a lot, so... But we we usually just write to not confuse ourselves. So how about you, Don? Did you ever take a spelling test for a job? No, they no? did not insist on that. Oh wow, thankfully. I've done that many times. Okay, well, this is a word that is always on one of these job-related spelling tests. Ah, okay. Okay, Don Kleppen, would you like the origin? It is Latin. Yes. Okay. Great. The Latin. word is accommodate. Accommodate. Okay. Accommodate. A- All right. Um, Latin. A-C-O-M-M-O-D-A-T-E. Accommodate. No, two C's. Two C's. A-C-C. I don't get a chance to steal and spell it. No, 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 no. I tell you. The way that uh, Dr. Jacques Bailey does it, he said, accommodate is spelled A-C-C-O-M-M-O-D-A-T-E. See, I I knew the two C's. I was wondering about the two M's. That's why it's always on a spelling test for a job interview. If you ever go on a job interview, when you see accommodate, two C's, two M's. Got it. One D. All right. All right. Here's a word that we all like to be in. This is for Joe Brand. Um, Limousine. Limousine. French origin. Limousine. Okay, limousine. L-I-M-O-S-U-I-N-E, limousine. (laughs) I'm sorry, Joe. Limousine is spelled L-I-M-O-U-S-I-N-E. He had the U. The U is silent. (laughs) You you had the U, you just 
put a U-turn in it and put it in the wrong spot. It's a good Billy Madison reference, Joe. <laughs> it's not fair. Rizzuto's not a word. He's a baseball player. <laughs> okay, Don, are you ready? I am ready. This word was the winning word in 1985. When the, I was negative two. The All winner right, of this, of the spelling being 85, spelled this word correctly. The word is... Milieu. Oh, boy. <laughs> Milieu. If you couldn't tell, it's French. I uh, I did pick that up from the uh, disdain on the Milieu. Uh, all right. Milieu. Milieu. M-I-L-L-I-E-U. Milieu. Dang it. Man, I am so glad I went first. Yeah, Milieu. Right. Is spelled M I L I E U. Two. Oh man, French. Okay. One L. Joe, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. Liaison. Liaison. That's French, by the oh, man. way. Man, I'm gonna make a complete <laughs> idiot out of myself with this one. Uh, liaison, as in he is her liaison. <laughs> I guess that's a sentence. Li- I guess that's a sentence. Liaison. L I E. L I E. S A I S I N I. Oh my. I N S E. Liaison. Liaison is spelled L I A I S O N. Three vowels in a row. Well, you guys are really uh, spellaholics here, huh? Well, I, if we could bring in our own word, I feel, I'd feel a lot more comfortable. Huge, huge difference that makes. Okay, uh, for this round, last Cats. one here. <laughs> this one's for Don. Are you ready, Don? I am ready. Here we go. Minuscule. Oh, okay. By the way, origin, Latin. Latin. Minuscule. Minuscule. M-I-N-I-S-C-U-L-E. Wow, that's how I would have spelled it. Come on. What is, what's, were there two N's? Minuscule. This is a tricky one. M-I-N-U-S-C-U-L-E. Us and our minuscule brains. Minuscule. You're getting exposed here. I have to say, Joe, you are still winning one to nothing. All right, I'll take that, it. With that great mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back for the final round of the first annual Elton Jim Spelling Bee right after this. I'm Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards. But listen anyway, and no switching. Jim Toronto with you here at WGN 7:20 a.m. filling in for Dean Richards this morning. If you're just tuning in. We are in the midst of the first annual Elton Jim Spelling Bee in honor this week of the Scripps National Spelling Bee, the 95th annual Scripps Spelling Bee this week. Dev Shah of Florida was the winner by spelling Samophile. Today, for our spelling competition, we have... Not as impressive, but... Two... Wow. Uh, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are battling. It's a one to nothing. <laughs> it's a tight one. Thus far, if you have just joined us, our words have been mortgage, accommodate, limousine... 
milieu, liaison, and minuscule. Of all those words, only mortgage was spelled correctly by Joe Brand. Spent a lot of my time looking at one. So, So, uh, as it stands now, Joe is still in the lead one to nothing. Don, this, this, this competition is still up for grabs. Wow. You that can, is exciting. You can still... <laughs> your voice... Yeah, you tone yourself down, will you? <laughs> I just, you know, it's the stakes. All so right, here we go. intimidated now. Here we go. I think this might be... We're going to... This, this will be the last round. So hopefully... And, and hopefully we can get to a tiebreaker. So here we go. Uh, Joe. I guess... Well, no, I, you know what? We'll, we'll let Don go first, because then yeah. if Don gets this, we could be tied. Right on. All right? No pressure, Don. I'm going to give you one that's that's going to be interesting because it's tricky. Great. Might maybe not hard, but tricky. Okay. Perhaps we'll see. I don't like these hints. The word is jewelry. Oh, from old French. Wow, that's an old French word. Okay, jewelry, jewelry, J E W E L R Y, jewelry. All right. How is that tricky? Well, because you could put an er, like jewelry. See, I thought I thought that was how you spelled it because you said it was tricky. That's a little reverse psychology there. Oh, okay. Well, but he got it. So now, okay. So now, let's see. Um, I think according to the real rules, you should have you. If you get this, you win, Joe. Okay. Okay. Jeweler. <laughs> Engraver. No. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna you know, since you were the, the spelling champ so far, we're gonna give you one with a little more oomph to it. How about onomatopoeia? Oh man. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> onomatopoeia, by the way, of Greek origin. Thanks to Gre- uh, our, our our Dean here. Thought I'd get the Greek uh, little aspect in. Every show has to have some Greek in it when you're when involved with, with Dean. Onomatopoeia to Joe Brand for the win. Onomatopoeia. O-N-O-M-A-T-O-P-I-A. Onomatopoeia. <laughs> you were so close. I was, uh, you were I was going- nervous. I thought he got it there. O-N-O-M-A-T-O-P-I-A. O P O E I A. Man. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Anamanapiaoa. I honestly think there's there's an old episode of Hey Arnold somewhere in the back of my brain where there's a spelling bee episode and that's the word and I was trying to really? dig back there. Yeah, I, I couldn't get it all out. Close, well, you man. know what? Close. I think it's ex- I'm actually glad that we were able to get. A tie. So yeah. we're all winners? Everybody's a winner, just like Joe Brand loves to be. <laughs> Your generation loves to get something just for showing up. Yep. You made fun of that earlier, but now look at you getting something just for showing I up. I feel on top of the world. <laughs> Thank okay. you for taking part in our first annual Elton Jim's Spelling Bee at WGN AM 720. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. A-P-P-R-E- C-I-A-T-E. Appreciate. Applause. Jim Toronto uh, with you, filling in for Dean Richards. Here's the news with Don Kleppen.
Jim Toronto with you here at WGN Radio, 720 AM, filling in for Dean Richards this morning. Although it's not morning anymore, 10 after 12, so good afternoon. Been here since 9, we'll be here till 1. We've been doing our best to jam 10 pounds of radio baloney into a four-hour bag, and hopefully I think we're doing pretty good. After uh, 12.30, we will do the uh, food segment that Dean usually does. We'll be talking about summer salad dressings. Everybody likes a nice, light summer salad. But what do you put on it? So we'll talk about that. Before I continue, I do want to say that um, I do enjoy, and and not well, not enjoy, because that means I made a mistake, but I do uh, encourage if you hear me make a mistake, do not let me buy. Do not let me skip. Do not let me off on that. So I appreciate through the texts. Uh, you know, I'm over here. I'm riffing, man. You know, no scripts. So sometimes, well, speaking of scripts, scripts national B. But, uh, you know, so sometimes, you know, you say the wrong word. It doesn't get the, you, you get some information wrong. So I just want to point out earlier, I had said that Sweden was the neutral country. And then I was correctly corrected via text to say no Jim it's Switzerland so then in an in an attempt <laughs> to make an excuse as to why I said Sweden as opposed to Switzerland I said well it's one of those Scandinavian countries and it was pointed out to me correctly again that Switzerland is not a Scandinavian country <laughs> it's right off of Italy by the Alps so I also have um, at the nine twenty six <laughs> minutes at uh, nine thirty seven. Wow! Save on those text fees, Jim. Holy smokes! Uh, There's that on. many, huh? Flipping through my notebook right now. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, yeah. Well, how do you spell liaison, Joe? Yeah, I, I whiffed on that one for sure. Onomatopoeia. Thank you very much. Some tough ones. Also, within the the spelling bee uh, uh, segment. It was pointed out to me that I referred to it as the first annual, when in fact, you cannot have an annual as the first part. A lot of people say that, though. I mean, that's that's an easy one. I thought True. so, but I, but I, but once again, I know that if I was listening to the radio and some screwball said that, I would be screaming at the radio, so I will say that I was wrong. The word is inaugural. That's right. How do you spell that, Don? I-N-A-U-G-U-R-A-L. Oh, if we only would have put that in there. That's all right. Thank you, Joe. Could you have spelled receive? R-E-C-E-I-V-E. And how about necessary? N-E-C-E-S-S-A-R-Y. Ah, uh, see? Okay. Yeah, now you're just showing off. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where were these ones? Thank you, Joe. Oh, the, <laughs> the, French, the French and the Latin. Just killing me. They were, like, they were on... fly or something? They, they were on the list, but they weren't offered. Oh, man. Uh, so anyway, we got through that. So, so hopefully those were at least were some of... I mean, Joe's apparently making a tally here. He'll have a, he'll, I need a new pen. I ran out of ink. He'll have yeah, a tote at the end, like at the uh, old Jerry Lewis telethon. <laughs> Can we have a tote, please, on how many mistakes Jim made? Yeah! Yeah! All right. I'm playing the uh, karma, 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 karma chameleon theme because uh, it's time to go to the uh, Pop Culture Club with Mick Kaler. Good morning or good afternoon, Mick. How you doing? I'm doing great, pal. How about yourself? Oh, not bad. Just uh, doing a little spelling. You know, the spelling thing, 
I thought of one uh, while I was listening to the segment, and I'm kind of torn. Do we spell Swifties, (laughs) S-W-I-F-T-I-E-S, or do we do it with the E-E-S at the end? Or the Y in the S. Yeah, and the way I checked it out online, by the way, is most people are doing with uh, Swift and then I-E-S at the end. So I just wanted to clarify that. That's what I... It could be the other ways, too. You're right. That's what I thought. And also, in our ongoing uh, effort to um, acknowledge other famous Swifts, let me mention Irving Paul Swifty Lazar. There you go, the agent, sure. He was an American talent agent and dealmaker, representing many of the big stars and authors. And if you remember Irving Paul Swifty Lazar, he would always be at the award shows, and he wore these giant Harry Carey glasses. Right, the bald head, yeah. Bald head with those giant glasses. <laughs> Swifty Lazar. He always had a big party, too, or something, didn't he? Yeah, he kind of looked like, uh, remember that dancing guy that used to do the Six Flags commercial? Exactly, yes. Yeah. That's exactly who he looked like. Hey, <laughs> you laugh about Swifty Lazar, but Swifty Lazar, in uh, tribute to uh, Taylor Swift conquering Chicago this weekend, some of his notable clients included Cary Grant, Cher, wow. Cole Porter, Ernest Hemingway, Humphrey Bogart, Ira Gershwin. Noel Coward, Madonna. Truman never got uh, Taylor Swift, too. Truman Capote. So uh, this guy was a macher. There's no doubt about that. Irving Paul Swifty Lazar. Yes, Taylor Swift has certainly earned her place in pop culture. But let's, let's think of and commemorate some of the other notable Swifts. In the pop culture world, I mentioned Jonathan Swift earlier, author of Gulliver's Travels, and now Irving Paul Swifty Lazar. You got it. There you go. So can you believe, Mick, in the pop culture club, Mick Kaler, of course, um, longtime radio producer here in Chicago for people like uh, Larry Lujak. Wow, that must have been cool. Um, and also uh, contributes uh, parody songs to the WGN, ra- uh, WGN Morning News on Channel 9 uh, on a regular basis. A friend of mine from back in college, we used to do radio together and a lot of other stuff at good old WRSE in Elmhurst, Illinois. And here we are in WGN together, Mick. How about that? We're in the big time, pal. I always like to talk to Mick. We are, as I said many times, um, uh, twin sons of different mothers. And uh, we share a love of pop culture. Can you believe, Mick, that it has been 25 years since Seinfeld has been off the air? Right. I mean, this is the, the, it went off on May 14th, 1998. Yeah. I mean, the show's never been off the, sh- off the air since then. It's been on reruns even while it was still on in first run, but... But my God, it's been 25 years since that finale. Right. Pretty crazy. And, you know, I, I remember a lot of people were, you know, disappointed with the final Seinfeld episode. And it basically, you know, the, the hour long was when they went on trial and they brought back all the characters. And I just don't know if there was any other way to end that series than to just kind of bring back some of those people from the previous years, you know, characters and storylines and all that, and just kind of tie it together. Yeah, it's all, you know, uh, finales are always difficult. And, uh, and of, of course, the, the, the one uh, sitcom finale that is um, often mentioned as the best 
finale ever is from the 80s version of Newhart. Right. Uh, when it turns out that, uh, that Bob Hartley was dreaming about owning a, an inn in, um, uh, in New England. And that entire show was a dream when Suzanne Plachette turns up in his bed and says, what are yeah, you doing, Bob? Yeah, that was a Bob? great finale for sure. <laughs> you know, what are you doing, Bob? I don't think Suzanne smoked too many cigarettes. Do you? No, not at all. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, another good one, I just watched it the other night when I was watching the Mary Tyler Moore documentary on HBO. The last Mary Tyler Moore episode was pretty good, too. Yeah, like that, that is pretty finale. good. It's a long way to Tipperary. Yep, there it is. <laughs> But, you know, you really, when you talk about Seinfeld, you know, it, 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 the fact that it's been off for 25 years, but yet at the same time doesn't feel, I think, at all, because it's never really been off the air. It's been in many incarnations, I mean, on many different platforms. Now it's on Netflix, but it's always, it was on TBS, now it's on Comedy Central, it's on many local stations. So it's never really gone, but uh, I think, you know, when, when you think about it, if, if you're 25 years old, uh, say you're 20 years old. You you don't remember Seinfeld being on television. That that show is an old show, right? Right, it is. And the other part of this, Jim, is the fact that when people were watching Seinfeld, so many different things happened on the show that became part of you know everybody's talking about. You know, and I wrote down a little list of a few of the things like. Uh, regifter, shrinkage, manhand, close talker, low talker, high talker, master of your domain, and of course one of the classic ones, the line, not that there's anything wrong with that. Exactly, the great, and, uh, the great uh, episode where they, they thought the, that the George and Jerry were gay. Right. Well, the funny part about all this, and when I started you know, trying to remember all these things that we all kind of identified with and then carried into our lives, was uh, I saw an interview with Jerry Seinfeld, and he was talking about the key things to comedy and lasting comedy. And he said, first of all, you got to make your friends laugh. Number two, you got to be able to make strangers laugh. Number three, make strangers laugh and get paid for it. Now, he did all those. And here's the key one. Make people imitate or carry on what you say and put it into their lives. And he did that, too. He did all those things. Oh, I mean, think about you. I, mean, I had this a, a similar list. Think about Serenity Now. Spongeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> Spongeworthy. You know, that was another one that I had written down, yeah. too. Yada, yada, yada. Yep. I yeah. yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah. I yada, I've yada, yada, yada sex. You know. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then he integrated things like, you know, the OJ story with uh, Kramer on the run. And, and then they brought in Jackie Childs playing like the, the mock-up of Johnny Cochran, you know. Oh, and, uh, and, Nazi. and what about and, Festa? The Yankees and George Steinbrenner. There were just so many things that were just put into the show as, hey, this is all part of something we're going to follow now. And Festivus for the rest of us. Exactly. And Festivus. It, nobody would have ever known about Festivus. It was a Seinfeld writer that actually talked about his father uh, t- carrying on that uh, or starting that tradition and doing that. We wouldn't have known anything about Festivus and the aluminum pole and any of that. Well, you think, you know, the thing about the, the show, too, I mean, when you watch it now, people might say, oh, well, it's okay. It's a little dated. There's certainly very, in, in, in many ways, it's kind of cringeworthy in a politically correct way. But you have to also understand at the time, this show was so innovative in, in, in not only what it talked about, but how it talked about. And that, I think, is important in terms of the shows that it has influenced um, 
since then, people look and they go, well, what's so great about Seinfeld? At that time, it broke the mold of the usual sitcom format. The right. number one show at the time when Seinfeld premiered and, and, and it uh, competed against Seinfeld for many years was Home Improvement. Yeah. Now, Very safe, you know, typical set-up sitcoms, you know, uh, domestic-type shows like that. Exactly. It, it is a home, it, extremely uh, uh, successful show, but it followed the format. And here's my question. 25 years later, do you ever even see home improvement reruns on television anywhere? Maybe somewhere, but there's certainly, again, getting back to being part of the American lexicon, there's none of that Exactly. Okay? And what, yeah. was, what was so great about it is I said not only is what it talked about, but how it talked about it. I did always like Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up comedy. So when I heard that he was getting a show, I did watch the first episodes in 1989. Called so did the, I. I was an early adopter, and I stayed with it the whole way. And, you know, back in my radio days, we got to have uh, Jerry in the studio a couple of different times. And I knew, even off the air as well as on the air, that Jerry was such a student of comedy as, you know, and a fan of it as well as being such a good wordsmith that I, his success and what it did never surprised me at all. And I remember watching the show, and, it, I mean, if, I mean it, if you watch even today, when you watch some of the, the first season uh, reruns from the first season. It's kind of hard to watch. The, the yeah. pacing isn't there. The, the the characters aren't fully developed. George is is a quasi Woody Allen inter, in, in imitation. Uh, right. Kramer is weird, but not in the way that he developed later. Uh, uh, even Elaine, her character uh, developed much more. She was she like they said in that one episode. We don't know how to write for women. You could tell yeah, at the beginning exactly. they didn't know how to write for Elaine. Well, yeah, and if you look at those beginning, especially those that first season or two, like you said, it was like they were getting out of the rail yard. They were chugging along, and they were starting to learn as time went on what worked and how to develop each character. You're exactly right, and it took some time. You're exactly right about that. Yeah, really, for me, I remember watching on the fir- when it first aired in 1992, watching the episode called The Contest. When, you know, the characters have a bet as to who uh, can hold out longest from self-gratifying themselves. Right. And here it was on network television. Once again, you know, today, you know, that term doesn't even exist really anymore. You know, so people don't even understand about network standards and what was allowed and what wasn't and censorship. And because today it's all kind of a mishmash. The I, I when when I got hint after the first two or three or four or five minutes of that episode of what they were talking about. I remember turning to my wife and I said, are they talking about what I think they're talking about with master of your own domain yep. and, and things like that? And then the great transition after every segment as to who gave in by who was sleeping and who was still <laughs> who was frustrated. Losing, who was winning, sure. Who was, who was yeah. holding out. <laughs> I mean, that was ingenious. And I think that, that episode signaled to me, and I have read since that after that episode, everybody involved, it wound up winning an Emmy Award, too, and it deservedly so, that the cast, you know, Larry David David, and um, and Jerry Seinfeld, they realized, okay, wait a minute. Now we found our voice. Right. And this is what we did. And then the, 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 uh, the creativity of uh, can just continued of how the, the show always had that kicker at the end. And all these stories somehow were all interrelated. And once again, talking about taboo, 
uh, issues, but ultimately it celebrated the mundane. It made it was so relatable that that's why we still talk about it, and it still relates to us. Yeah, and like you said, it was the way they said things and approached them, and again, it was, again, the innovation of those characters and what they did in their simple little ways, and as they've often said, those characters were not very likable people, too. You know, they were always greedy, they were always looking out for themselves, Uh, you know, Jerry had a million girlfriends, so there was a lot of (laughs) things there that just you know, presented itself and people just took it in and uh, it was fun to watch. And so many supporting characters. I mean, Newman, the diabolical Newman. <laughs> and, and they never explained why Jerry and Newman were such enemies. <laughs> I know. They just were. <laughs> and, 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 and for those of you who remember it and you could look them up, and the, I remember seeing them in reruns once again on Channel 9 when I was a little kid. Uh, if you look back, and Jerry Seinfeld has said, he based this show on the old Abbott and Costello uh, comedy show. Not yeah. the movies, but they had a TV show. And the basis of it was that Abbott and Costello were imaginary versions of themselves, Bud and Lou. They lived in an apartment building. They interacted with people on the street and people in their apartment building. And there's the Seinfeld show. <laughs> it's all there. I mean, certainly then the 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 mix of... Jerry Seinfeld's comedy with Larry David's cynical side. In my view, it's it's McCartney and Lennon, right? You know, and 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 Jerry needed Larry David to give him something different, and Larry needed Seinfeld because Seinfeld was a mass appeal comedian. Well, the other funny part too is you think of Larry David before he uh, and Jerry linked up for the show when he uh, wrote for Saturday Night Live and he never got one of his sketches on right. the show, and you know that there had to be some ideas he had that ended up becoming uh, episodes of Seinfeld too. Yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> Mick, uh, we're running out of time. I appreciate taking the time and uh, reminiscing, but I—I I mean, I tell you, I love the Honeymooners, and that's how you and I met. We uh, for our love for the Honeymooners, but I have to say that I think. I watch Seinfeld more than the Honeymooners. Yeah, I definitely do too. Just you know, there's more seasons and there's more, like you said, character development and fun, and it's a a fun thing to to you know still still go through. And like you said, it is somewhat dated now, but again, at the time, it was such an innovation that everybody followed into. Well, yada yada yada, Mick. Thank you so much for joining me, and we will talk again. I appreciate it. My pleasure, pal. You take care. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards, but listen anyway. We'll be back after this. No switching. Jim Toronto with you this afternoon. We started in the morning at 9. Here it is. What? 12.37. We're going into the home stretch here. We'll be here till 1 o'clock. And then we'll pass things off to Steve Dale. And um, as I said, I'm. Uh, it's nice to be back here. I've not been uh, hosting. I've been on with Dean a few times uh, in the last several months. But I haven't been hosting, I think, since... I think January, so it's nice to be back in the cockpit. And once again, uh, I appreciate Dean um, entrusting me with uh, the sacred four hours here at WGN, and hopefully we have lived up to his standards, and uh, you've had a good time. I certainly have. And as I said, I'm having a great day today. I get get to do two of the great things I love to do most, which is uh, be on the radio and be on the stage. And so right after today's show, in fact, I will be uh, jumping in my car and driving over to the Edgewater Edgewater area uh, and appearing in uh, the play called The Crucible, Arthur Miller's 
uh, Tony-winning award play from 1953, appearing uh, at the Invictus Theater. I'd love to say get your tickets now, but thankfully so many people have already gotten their tickets, and our run is sold out through June 14th. So very, very appreciative of that. I'm very proud of this show. And um, so if you do have tickets, thank you so much for buying them. And uh, if not, um, I all, you know, Dean has always been very generous in, uh, in helping me promote my, my latest theatrical endeavors. And so uh, when you hear me talking about a play, get those tickets fast because they're going fast. <laughs> but we are having a great time doing The Crucible. We are Jeff Recommended, which is also a high recommendation here in the Chicago area. And uh, so just having fun today. It's one of those days for me. Radio in the morning and theater in the afternoon. Uh, having a good time. Hope you are too. Uh, it is summer, officially. Um, I know Now you say, Jim, it is not officially summer. It doesn't become officially summer until late, what, mid-June, with 20, 20th, 21st, something like that. But it really, there's two separate ways. A lot of it, of course, is based on the solstice, and we 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 do that. But if you talk to Tom Skilling, yeah. Hi, Micah. Hi, Roy. Hi, Ray. Thanks, guys. Yeah, well, this is a beautiful uh, 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 hummingbird uh, in Morton Grove. Yeah, beautiful. That's, that's quite a picture. Those those little those little guys can can really. Uh, Fly fast, don't you think, Micah? Yeah. But um, Tom will tell you, Tom Skilling will tell you that we are in summer, Meteor, meteorological. I think that's how you say it, right, Tom? Yeah, yeah. Meteorological summer starts June 1st. So welcome to summer. I always make the joke that summer goes by so fast that it's done by June 2nd. June 2nd, summer's over. It goes. It seems like it goes by that fast, but um, yes, officially, I believe it's June twenty first. And if I'm wrong, please text me. Uh, Joe Brand has that that running list of uh, mistakes I've made. <laughs> um, but today uh, we are in, according to meteorological summer, we have already begun. And I don't know about you, but uh, I like a good salad anytime. Summer winter spring fall all you got to do is call and if you're calling for a salad i'll be there yes i will um and i was just thinking of we were talking about salads the other day and there are some restaurants those old school restaurants that are still around and i love going to some of those there was one on the northwest side called sabatino's which unfortunately closed a couple of years ago it was one of those old school, you know, late 60s, early 70s restaurants where you just walked in and they have the, the little Christmas lights on all the time and, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the paneling on the walls. And um, most of the foods have heavy gravies with them. You know, those kind of restaurants. And one of the things that, for me, always identified those old school uh, kind of restaurants from the 60s and 70s especially was when you ordered a salad they would bring the salad to you in the this silver kind of spinning lazy susan you remember that it was this metallic thing that spun and it usually had three different salad dressings 
And in those days, the, the big three, if you will, were always French, Thousand Island, and then it was interesting. The third one was always a wild card. Some places had vinegar and oil. Some places had Roquefort. <laughs> Roquefort. Some had creamy garlic. Some even had green goddess. Remember green goddess? So that third one was always the wild card, depending on the restaurant. But French and Thousand Island, those were perennials. Those were staples. And you, 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 you pass that to the other people at your table. And then, or sometimes, depending on if someone was sitting right next to you, the great thing of that is that you spun it. And if, say, somebody wanted the creamy garlic and you wanted the French, you could both be dipping and, and filling your salads at the same time. You can't beat that. I I think they still have it. There's a great pizza place in Hillside on Butterfield called Q's. Been going to Q's for years. Had relatives that lived in Westchester and in the Hillside area there for many years. So we would always go to Q's whether they ordered in or we would sit in the place. And my wife and I still go there on occasion. Have Great that 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 typical thin crust Chicago style thin crust pizza with the cornmeal on the bottom and Q's. I believe it's been a while since I've been there. I hope they haven't changed. This is really one of these old school places I'm telling you about. When they bring the salad dressing, they I'm pretty sure they bring it in that silver lazy Susan spinning salad thing, and. They do have the creamy garlic. Oh, I love the creamy garlic. Q's gives you this salad in those wooden salad bowls. Remember those those brown or sometimes black wooden salad bowls? All those old school places had those. And they give you this salad that is bursting outside of the bowl, and it's topped with, it appears to be a can fill full of, of olives, of black olives. There's so many black olives, but oh, those those kind of restaurants I just love. But I was just wondering, uh, what what are you putting on your salads now in the summer? I mean, of course, everybody is into vinaigrettes and, you know, the strawberry vinaigrettes and the lemon vinaigrettes and the raspberry vinaigrettes and the citrus vinaigrettes and balsamic now, of course, is big, both creamy as well as the regular balsamic and people use uh you know olive oil and uh, there's many different balsamic uh, flavors now um those are perfect and you know for the summer they're light uh they add a little uh flavor not too high on the calories that's the other thing you know say oh yeah i'm 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 eating healthy i'm going to have a salad but my gosh if you put a, a if you put a, a few dollops of creamy garlic or French, or Thousand Island, you're not eating healthy. So that's where the trade-off is. Uh, some of these uh, these summer salads, uh, salad dressings, not only uh, give you a light and refreshing flavor, but they also cut down on the calories, which is, I guess, the whole idea. Producer Jack, do you are you a salad guy? You're 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 a sports guy. Jack's a sports guy. He's a rough and tumble kind of guy. So would you say salads are in, or do you do you not eat salads? Uh, not a big salad guy. Not a big salad guy. No. If you had to eat a salad, 
Do you even do you do you look at I that don't, face? I just don't you should it, yeah. see his face <laughs> when I even when I even offered the potential of a salad. Your face I looked. Can't, I can't remember the last time I had a salad. You cannot remember no. the last time you had a salad of any kind Mm-mm. at a restaurant. Nope. So what does a jack eat? A uh, lot of chicken. Oh, chicken. Yeah. So you don't even have like a chicken salad, like a salad with chicken on I mean, it? if I would, it would have to have something like that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that is wild. Yeah, sorry. Not much help over here. No, not at all. <laughs> well, I mean, we can go to the phone lines here, 312-981-7200 or the text. What's your favorite salad dressing? You have a good summer salad dressing? As I said, I... I have I'm I'm old school on that, but I but but I love a good creamy garlic. That one, if I'm if I'm in the mood to get a little decadent, I will do the creamy garlic. But I'm also big on a honey mustard, and I got to tell you, it's probably high on calories. And this is completely uh, no endorsements here. Just the endorsement are my taste buds. So I'm not there's, I'm not saying this you know for any other ulterior motive except it's really good. There's a salad dressing brand called Brianna's, and they make a poppy seed dressing. Wow, it is good. I'll tell you, I think it's high calorie-wise. My wife and I haven't had it in a while. We used to get it all the time. Um, In fact, I think I was introduced to the Brianna's poppy seed dressing uh, by Gary Meyer's wife. We had dinner at their house one time. And I think that's where we first discovered the Brianna's. Brianna's poppy seed dressing. If you want a good dressing, if you're not counting the calories on the dressing, Brianna's poppy seed dressing. <laughs> wow. Wow. Really, really like that. But I'm always I'm always a sucker for a good honey mustard, too. What's yours? 312. 981-7200. We're talking salad dressings here at WGN Radio 720 AM. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards, but listen anyway. No switching. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards this afternoon. We started at 9, and here it is almost 1 o'clock. We'll be handing things off to Steve Dale. Uh, he'll be on from 1 to 3. Thank you for uh, tuning in. If you've been with me since the beginning, as I said, I've done my best here to uh, cram in uh, 10 pounds of radio bologna into a four-hour bag. I think we've done a pretty good job. We're talking salad dressings here for the summer, and I started to talk about some of those old-school restaurants with those uh, silver trio uh, salad um, <laughs> servers, and somebody mentioned a place where I have been, and uh, I don't live too far from it. Tom Steakhouse in Melrose Park. Yes, definitely. They have the trio, and they and this person uh, at area code uh, 630 says, and the best way is to mix all three. Yes. Yes. Very, very good. Someone also uh, at uh, area code 309 says, a French Thousand Island combination. Wow. People into the combos. The one that I forgot about, which is, of course, my favorite. I talked about honey mustard, but no, no. Uh, 815, you have it. Blue cheese on a Cobb salad. Oh, yes. I love a good Cobb salad. I love a good Cobb salad. You used to have a great Cobb salad at... uh, 
that Hard Rock Cafe. Whenever I would travel, we would go to Hard Rock Cafes because at least you can depend on it for that first day when you're in town if you're not really sure where you're going to go. And I would always get the Cobb salad. Oh, with blue cheese. Gotta love blue cheese. Um, who else? Uh, someone else says there's a, a local restaurant in Joliet here at 815 area code that has the Lazy Susan of dressings, and they make their own. Someone says a spinach-based salad with raw vegetables topped with sliced mushrooms and ranch dressing. How do you go wrong with ranch, right? Ranch is, uh, is certainly... Uh, you know, one of the one of those main and now thanks to the the hot wings uh, phenomenon, ranches probably probably the the, the leading selling uh, brand of salad dressing. I would imagine uh, a place called Jack Gibbons has that trio of the um, the salad uh, server. Someone says uh, here at uh, area code nine two zero, they think the best salad is straight and simple. Balsamic glaze, simply thick balsamic vinegar. Yeah, uh, I, I I love balsamic vinegar. That's what I I put. I, sometimes I just have tomatoes in a bowl, little cherry tomatoes, you know, little snacking tomatoes. I like to snack on to, on tomatoes instead of candy bars. I snack on tomatoes, and uh, every so often I will exactly what you say. I'll just pour a little balsamic and stir that up. Uh, that's perfect. That is uh, is perfect stuff. Oh my gosh, the the blue cheese is in my mind now. Oh my gosh, I have I have such a taste for a blue cheese salad or a hamburger with blue cheese. Don't you love the blue cheese cheeseburger? Oh, you could tell. I got up very early this morning. I had a I was in the, my play last night. By the time I got home it was about 11 11:30. And I I only had something very small to snack on. I got up early this morning and to get prepared for the show, didn't have anything. It's 1 o'clock. I've got to go on stage at 3 o'clock. I haven't eaten yet, and you can tell I'm hungry, can't you? Oh. <laughs> uh, 847 talks about Roquefort. Yes. Some people think blue cheese and Roquefort are the same, this person says, but they are not. They're not sure how, but they just are. <laughs> but I'm with you, 847. I love salads. I can eat salads. I do eat salads. Uh, quite a bit. When I go to restaurants, I'm I'm always a salad guy, and at home as well. I just uh, I just love a good salad. In fact, when my wife and I go to relatives, we bring the salad. That's my thing. I bring the salad and make the salad. So it sounds like balsamics and vinaigrettes and blue cheese and French and Thousand Island, always those staples. Summer salads. Need a good summer uh, summer salad dressing, and my gosh, all the ones that you've talked about are certainly ones that uh, are on my list. Very good. We'll take a quick break here, and we'll wrap things up. Jim Toronto filling in for Dean Richards at WGN Radio, 720 AM. But listen anyway. No switching. And we're back here wrapping things up. Jim Toronto, Elton Jim, been filling in for Dean Richards this morning from 9 to just about 1 o'clock. Thank you so much for spending your day with me here and uh, starting your day the Elton Jim way. Hope you had a good time. I sure did. There's nowhere I love being more than right here on the radio. And uh, so hopefully we will talk again soon. If you like what you hear, don't forget I have a podcast, a weekly podcast that's on WGNRadio.com every Monday. We'll have a new one posted tomorrow. I've been doing that now since 2016. 
367 episodes. So go on there. If you like what you heard today, uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy the podcast as well. Thanks to Jack Heinrich, uh, the producer today, Joe Brand and Don Klepper uh, joining in. Thanks to Schwanee for giving a call from Virginia. All my guests. And once again, thank you. And thanks to Dean for being so kind to let me fill in here when he takes a little day off. He certainly deserves a break. And I'm always uh, grateful and happy to fill in. Hope you uh, enjoyed what you heard. I enjoyed being here. I hope you enjoyed being on the other side of the microphone. 